Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 205, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the master of the nativity. So joining me today is Lisa Scheim. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Chris. And when are we starting this? So it's Monday, uh, May 13th, 2019, starting at approximately 10.36. Sounds about right. PM? Yes. All right. It's a little late. Yeah. We had a long setup process today, but we are determined to get this in because it's an important episode and it's one I've been meaning to do for quite a while. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot for, for hanging in there. Of course. All right. So preliminary stuff. So we're going to be talking about the overall ruler of the chart in ancient astrology. This talk, this is actually a lecture that I presented um, first at the Northwest Astrology Conference two years ago in May of 2017. And then again last year at the United Astrology Conference in what was it, May of 2018, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is a lecture. Typically, I presented it as a lecture, a 75 minute lecture, um, but we're going to do it as a, a sort of a blend between a, a lecture and a dialogue today. Because in the past, when I first started doing the podcast, people would complain, complain a lot about solo shows and mm -hmm. would always ask me to like that they thought it was more interesting and engaging if it was more of a dialogue. So you are joining me today for that reason, gracious, very graciously, I might add. Uh, so thanks for doing that. You're welcome. <laughs> so you're going to take the role of like the audience in hopefully anticipating some of the questions that they might have as we go through this. And um, yeah, sort of just giving me somebody to bounce some of this off of so that I'm not just like talking to myself into the the void or into the abyss right. over the course of the next couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing we meant to state, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that we're going to try to keep this more concise than usual. I think we have a tendency to linger and to talk a lot and to like go on sort of sidetracks, but we're going to try to keep this relatively concise. We're shooting for two hours and definitely not longer than three. This is not going to be a zodiac releasing episode where we go for like four hours. Right. So, and we're obviously starting rather late today. So that plays a factor or plays a role as well. For sure. All right. But at least Jupiter was on the ascendant roughly when we started. It's true. Okay. All right. Um, any other preliminaries before we jump into this? I feel like there was something, but I can't remember it now. So I've got a bunch of slides, and I'm going to try to show some of the slides at least briefly as we're going through this talk and also sort of switch between cameras and things like that. Um, hopefully I can do that all appropriately. Um, some of this stuff, the images may be posted on the Astrology Podcast website. I'm also going to mention some links at different points, um, but for the most part, the video version should have the slides. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think you were just going to mention that you had the laptop out and it is kind of blocking a little bit only because the light was being weird, right, when we had it up. Yeah, we decided to throw the laptop up here. That way I can look at the slides and refer to them without like having to look over to the monitor to the left, which I know some people complained about <laughs> a few episodes ago and was kind of annoying for me having to look over constantly right? or having to look at the monitor that's kind of in front of us. Yeah. Anyway, we're still getting used to the new studio, but we're going to use this as an opportunity to try another new development, which is adding in a few new things. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay. So- um, starting point for this talk, the title of this talk is The Master of the Nativity. And so this talk was actually like the premise of this talk is that traditionally there were many different planetary rulers in the chart in traditional astrology. And most people know this if you start studying traditional astrology for even like a brief 
period of time, you realize that um, there's the ruler of houses, right? Like the ruler of the seventh house indicating marriage, the ruler of the tenth house indicating career. Mm -hmm. There are lots. And one of the ways that you use lots or Arabic parts is by looking at not just the placement of the lot as a mathematical point or the Arabic part or whatever you want to call it, but you end up all, uh, focusing a lot on the ruler of the lot as well. Mm -hmm. So like the ruler of the lot of fortune, for example, is very important. The ruler of the lot of spirit, the ruler of the lot of eros, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. There's also triplicity rulers, like the triplicity ruler of the sect light technique that's in Dorotheus and in Valens. And there's also uh, bound lords and many other, or term lords and many other rulers. Mm -hmm. um, so there's many different rulers in traditional astrology, but some ancient astrologers believed in an overall ruler of the chart. And this is a very mysterious doctrine in ancient astrology that's not very well attested in the sources where a lot of people refer to it, but there's not a lot of surviving texts that tell you how to determine it or anything else. But there was this general belief that there was this overall ruler of the chart that they called the master of the nativity. And this planet was thought to have the power to characterize the entire life of the native in some way. So not just to be some small ruler of a house or some topic in the life, but instead to have some broader overarching role to play in the native's life in general. Mm -hmm. So Porphyry, though, one of the astrologers from the fourth century, says that this is actually one of the most difficult things to calculate, one of the most difficult things in all of ancient astrology to calculate. Um, so that's the setup. This talk is based on, I'm going to give a broad overview of this topic based on um, a research project that I did in 2011 that was funded by Dr. H of Regulus Astrology, where he was researching a book on sort of applying the doctrine of the master of the nativity, especially in later medieval sources, which he was already familiar with being a student of Robert Zoller. And he wanted me to go back and do sort of like a survey of all references to the master of the nativity in Hellenistic astrology where the, the doctrine originated. So I spent a summer doing that and he paid me to do it and I wrote up this little paper that was like 15 or 20 page, pages long for him for that. So I never published that paper and this talk and this presentation is partially based on that research and is sort of like my first time putting some of that out there since I originally researched it in 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, so that's the that's the setup. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Okay. When did do you remember me first talking about this, or was it only when I started putting the talk together? You mean very early on, like when you were originally researching it? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I don't remember if I talked about it. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay. Yeah, I think I was visiting you here in Denver before I moved here. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. I want to show a quote first from one of the most important ancient sources um, there is and one of the oldest sources in Western astrology, at least in terms of the Hellenistic astrological tradition, which started roughly around the first, like like the late second or early first century BCE. And this is a, a fragment that survives from the work of Petasiris. Who's one of the like foundational authors of Hellenistic astrology? So, in this quote that survives from Petasiris, and this is um, actually from Vadius Valens, who quotes Petasiris because he's one of the few authors that seems to have had access to that important foundational text. 
but that text itself doesn't survive anymore. So all we have is like quotes, like little tiny quotes from it um, from different later authors. So we think Petrosyrus lived in like the around 100 BCE, um, and Valens was writing around 175 CE, so a few centuries later. Uh, but this is one of the quotes that does survive in Valens from Petrosyrus, and it's actually on the Master of the Nativity. So in the Petrosyrus quote, it says, uh, the beginning, the end, the controller, and the measurement standard of the whole is the ruling star of each nativity. It makes clear what kind of person the native will be, what kind of foundation his livelihood will have, what his character will be, what sort of body, health, and appearance he will have, and all of the things that will accompany him in life. Without this star, nothing, neither occupation nor eminence, will come to anyone. So this is from Vedius Valens, Anthology, Book 2, Chapter 41, Sentences 3 through 4, translated by Mark Riley in page 54 of his translations with some modifications from me to make it make a little more sense compared to Riley's translation conventions. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty major quote. So Valens is quoting this at first from this very ancient author in order to show how some ancient sources viewed this as a super important doctrine and how they were really attributing a lot of um, stuff to it, right? Like they were mm -hmm. really this ancient source, Petasiris, obviously considered this to be a very, not just crucial doctrine, but he seemed to have heaped a lot of importance in saying that almost everything depends on the master of the nativity in a person's life, that it's like the overall ruler of the chart in a way that accounts for a bunch of different things. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you can see that, I mean, my initial impression is sometimes, you know, hearing things like this, like, well, there's the whole rest of the chart, you know, not everything can boil down to one placement. But you can see this, you know, people try to do this at different points with, say, like the um, final dispositor of a chart or like saying I'm such and such planet dominant or things like that. Right. So I think there's different ways that people are actually always trying to find like a specific planet that accounts for most things in their life. Yeah, there's like echoes of that as not just as echoes of this doctrine specifically, but also different approaches to almost trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, even on some level, the sun sign mm -hmm. in a very simple sense is that, in that it's like putting a lot onto one placement in a chart. And for some people, at least, they do really resonate with the sun sign placement right. for reasons that actually might be explained by this doctrine that we'll get into a little bit later in this talk. But this is a super ancient source who says that there's this really complicated thing to calculate and that um, the person's entire life will somehow depend on this one planetary ruler. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, in terms of the surviving treatments and in terms of the textual sources, because that was what my original research project was for this. A number of fragments and allusions to the master of the nativity survive uh, in ancient sources. Um, however, unfortunately for us, there's not many explicit instructions for how to calculate it. So there's like, I don't know, 20 or 30 Hellenistic texts that survive. Some of them are like full texts that survive largely in their entirety. Others are only in fragments, but there's like, let's say, 20 or 30 texts in different shapes or different conditions that survive from the Greco-Roman tradition in Greek and Latin, right? Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of them, just about every one of them 
mentions this doctrine at least in passing at some point and talks about just mentions the master of the nativity at some point or mentions how important it is in passing at some point but many of them unfortunately just don't don't explain how to calculate it mm-hmm. which is super annoying if you're trying right. to reconstruct this doctrine it's something they're all aware of and they're all drawing on earlier source texts that talk about it but then unfortunately all of those early source texts have been lost over the past 2000 years mm-hmm. So one of the problems with that, or as a result of that, there is some ambiguity about how it was viewed in the early tradition, like what they conceptualized the master of the nativity as being for, or what they conceptualized, what their conceptual motivation was to begin with, as well as what they thought it was capable of doing versus what they thought it was not capable of doing Mm -hmm. uh, due to the loss of so many of the early sources. So later in the tradition, it seems like the master of the nativity doctrine sort of got conflated with the length of life technique. And there's some ambiguity surrounding that because while I get the sense that there was some part of the master of the nativity technique that definitely had application to studying the length of life, it seems like in a lot of the later sources, that almost becomes the only thing that they're using the technique or part of the technique for. And they sort of forget about some of the other parts of the technique that were applied to different things like character analysis, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like from that quote that you read earlier, like it definitely is was supposed to, at least if that was representative, um, you know, talk about both the body and the vitality as well as like many other things about the person's life as a whole. Yeah. And it's clear like from that quote that Petasiris was associating some vitality and some things that could be associated with like, let's say the length of life with the technique, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the only thing he was associating with the technique. If we just go back to the quote again, yeah, exactly, yeah, because so, so it talks about like the foundation of their livelihood, what kind of person the native will be, things about occupation and eminence, and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to saying uh, what sort of body health and appearance you will have, and even if you look at that quote, the body health, the body part is there in the text, but the health and appearance part is sort of bracketed because the translator or the editor thought that that fell out of the sentence because it looked like there was something missing. Mm, okay. So that's like an inference based on the, the translator and the editor. Mm-hmm. I see. Anyway, so um, that's part of the premise. So despite that, despite the sketchiness of the sources for this technique and the fact that very little, very few discussions of it, like explicit discussions where they tell you explicitly how to calculate it, survive. Um, luckily, there was one ancient source that did survive that does tell you how to calculate the technique. And this is the, um, it, it comes from the Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry of Tyre, who lived somewhere around the year 300 CE. So Porphyry was famously, he's most famous or most well known for being the student, the head, the main student of the philosopher Plotinus. Who was the founder of Neoplatonism, which was one of the major dominant philosophical schools in late antiquity? It was like the late antique version of Platonism. And Plotinus was one of the most famous, sort of later Roman era philosophers. Mm-hmm. And Porphyry was famous for having um, taken Plotinus's works and edited them and then published them. So without Porphyry, we wouldn't know about Plotinus's writings for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Porphyry himself was also like a, a relatively well-respected philosopher in his own right, 
who wrote a bunch of philosophical texts that were influential in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. One of the things that's interesting about Porphyry is that in his philosophical text that we know that he wrote for sure, we see occasional references to astrology, which makes it clear that he was familiar with the subject. Mm -hmm. um, so that there's this other text. When we come to this other text that survives, that's attributed to Porphyry, and sometimes scholars kind of question whether he was actually whether he actually wrote it. There are some good reasons to believe that he did. And this text is um, it's titled it's titled something like the Introduction to the Tetrabiblos of Ptolemy. So it's an introduction to Ptolemy where at the beginning of the text the author says that Ptolemy talks about a lot of techniques and concepts, but he takes a lot of technical terminology for granted. Mm -hmm. So this author says that he's going to write an introduction where he's going to define a bunch of technical concepts that are necessary in order to read Ptolemy's work and understand it. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the text that's attributed to Porphyry. And some scholars are skeptical whether Porphyry wrote it, uh, but I tend to side with the people who believe that he did because if you read Porphyry's philosophical works, He's obviously familiar with astrology and talks about it in several different places, including in one of his philosophical works. He actually mentions and has this whole debate with another philosopher named Iamblichus about the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the master of the nativity and how to calculate it is one of the things that he deals with in the introduction to the Tetrabiblos. Mm -hmm. So, this text, the introduction to the Tetrabiblos, it has some material that might be. Like the introduction that might be unique to Porphyry when he wrote it around the year 300. However, um, most of it is actually just a set of definitions that have been taken from an earlier text, which is the lost work of Antiochus of Athens, who probably lived somewhere around the first century. So Antiochus in the first century wrote a work, a book of definitions where he went through and defined basic astrological concepts. And so Porphyry seems to have taken pretty much verbatim a bunch of the definitions from Antiochus and then turned that into a little booklet and, and that became the introduction to Ptolemy. Okay. So this text is important. Porphyry's version of it is important because it actually preserves the oldest set of instructions for calculating the master of the nativity. And this is introduced in chapter 30 of Porphyry's introduction. So super important text. Um, there's a few different translations, either full translations or partial translations of it at this point. The one that's actually widely available and the easiest and cheapest one to access is the one by James Holden. So I think you can, I forget what the title is, but you just search like the introduction to Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos by Porphyry of Tyre, of Tyre, and uh, you'll find it on Amazon for like 10 or $15. Nice. Yeah, it was just published. It was one of the many texts that Holden published. He, like apparently since the 1950s, he originally went to school and got a master's degree in classics. And like his master's thesis was, um, it was like a, a thesis on William Lilly. He wrote a whole like master's thesis on William Lilly and he studied classics basically in college. But then after college, he uh, he was in the army for a bit, but he ended up then going into and becoming like an electrician or something and working in that field for 
the next several decades until he retired eventually in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he started doing in the 1950s, way back in the 1950s, is translating all these ancient astrological texts based on his ability to read Greek and Latin. Mm-hmm. And one of the texts that he translated early on was the introduction to the Tetrabiblos by Porphyry, but he only published it in the last few years of his life uh, before he passed away in, I think, 2013 or 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a really interesting life story and um, was doing really interesting things like that with astrology well before most other people were. Yeah, and it was because of his ability to read Greek and Latin, which most astrologers don't have, and because it's not like taught. It used to be taught in school as mm-hmm. like one of the primary or secondary languages that you would learn, whereas nowadays usually it's more like a modern language, like you'll learn French or Spanish right. or something like that. But yeah. Back in the day, you would learn Latin and and maybe Greek. Mm -hmm. So, because Holden had that, and because he studied classics in school, where knowledge of Greek and Latin is necessary in order to read the classics, the ancient classical works, um, he was one of the few astrologers that was able to go back and read some of these texts in their original language. And one of the things that he did, and one of the things that he sort of like bequeathed to the astrological community was. This this whole heap of translations that he published through the American Federation of Astrologers towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the texts that he translated, and it's a very it's actually a very short chapter. It's not a super lo- long chapter, so I don't want to overhype it for those that end up buying that book because you might be kind of disappointed at how brief it is. Um, but uh, he does outline the approach. Probably the earliest approaches that survive to calculating the master of the nativity, and he ends up reporting what are what appear to be basically two variant approaches or two variant traditions to this doctrine. So one of them is potentially derived from the work of Nechepso and Petasiris. Um, Petasiris, who I mentioned earlier, is one of the foundational authors of Hellenistic astrology, and he was often sort of grouped together with this other figure named Nechepso. Who uh, their relationship is unclear, but it seems like in some texts they're mentioned as a pair where they must have been attributed a text early on that was like co-authored by them. But in other instances, it seems like there's individual texts that they must have written separately. So they're kind of mysterious foundational authors in Hellenistic astrology somewhere around 100 BCE. Um, the second variant or the second approach to the master of the nativity doctrine. Um, Porphyry doesn't say who it was from, but it appears to be from some early sort of unknown source, perhaps a hermetic source of some sort. Mm-hmm. Okay. S- some writing attributed to Hermes. So um, I actually have a nice handy little uh, diagram for that. A little line diagram. I spent a lot of time <laughs> working on this, like countless hours putting this diagram together. So, uh, for those listening to the audio version, it just shows like a circle with Nechepso and Petasiris written in the middle, and to the right of that is the date circa 100 BCE. To the left of that, there's another circle with a question mark where, let's say, roughly contemporaneous with that, or maybe a little bit after them, is this other second work that's written on the Master of the Nativity by somebody by we don't know because Porphyry doesn't mention the name. So, both of those two texts. Are then drawn on by Antiochus, who wrote his book of definitions sometime around the first century CE, give or take. And then from Antiochus, we have Porphyry, 
who drew on and wrote his text sometime around the year 300 CE. Mm -hmm. And those dates on Porphyry are sort of approximate because he lived around the late uh, late second, sorry, late sorry, late third and early fourth century CE. Mm -hmm. So that's the chronology of the textual sources that we're working with here. All right, so let's. Are there any in terms of the historical stuff? I know we're moving kind of slow with this, and mm -hmm. part of it's because part of it's because it's late, but part of it's because I gave this talk two years ago or developed it two years ago, and the last time I gave it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little rusty, and I'm sort of remembering some of this as we go and trying to make sure we outline it carefully and sort of deliberately. Mm -hmm. um, anything in terms of the historical stuff that I should not dwell on, but like expand on before we move on? Mm. Any questions that you had anticipated an audience might have at this stage? I mean, the only question that I might anticipate, and I don't know if this is just anticipating my own type of questions or other people's. No, no, don't anticipate your own <laughs> question. You have too have good of questions. Right? <laughs> and you're gonna you'll probably jump ahead to something I'm, I want to talk about or deal with later. I mean, it's actually pretty general. I was just going to say, like, the only question that would occur to me would be, like, you know, how do we know how representative these things are given, you know, all of the things that weren't passed down? Or, you know, do we know that these couple possible variants are like the main ways that people actually use to calculate it? Right. Um, that's a good question. That's too good of a question. Like, don't ask questions. <laughs> that's why I wanted somebody. You could think of imagining <laughs> somebody else to ask like right. a more simple question, like what is, what is the ruler, what is the ruler of a sign, or something like that. <laughs> no, this seems like a, a like a common question. Um, yeah, I think if they were more anonymous, like the anonymous source, we don't know how prevalent that one was because we don't know what the, know what the name is. But the fact that they're quoting Nichepso and Petasiris and they're attributing some of this doctrine to them, and in fact. Um, we know when later authors talk about the length of life technique that they often bring Nechepso and Petasiris up. So we know from just that perspective that it's widely quoted. We also know that Nechepso and Petasiris are like the two most widely quoted ancient authors, basically. Mm -hmm, right. So if a doctrine is being attributed to Nechepso and Petasiris, and if we can verify from other authors, like Valens, for example, who talks about Nechepso and Petasiris, where he talks about, when he talks about the length of life technique, or Ptolemy alludes to Petasiris as the ancient one when he first talk, starts talking about the length of life technique, if we can cross-reference and we know this doctrine is coming from Nechepso and Petasiris in that important foundational text, mm -hmm. then we know it was pretty widely used um, because. We do know that the Nechepso and Petasiris text was one of the most widely uh, cited ancient texts, and we know that it played some sort of foundational role in the early period of Hellenistic astrology being synthesized around the first century BCE that led to it sort of exploding in popularity across the ancient world. Um, and additionally, Nechepso and Petasiris are not just two of the most widely quoted ancient sources by other astrologers, but they were actually so famous and their texts were so influential that they were actually quoted by non-astrologers. Mm. So there's like like philosophers and there's um, somebody that satirized Nechepso and Petasiris at one point, uh, the poet Juvenal. Um, there's other texts on like um, magical or 
medical sort of things that cite Nechapso. Mm -hmm. So they get cited. They were so influential and their text was so widely known as like the compendium on ancient astrology that they get cited not just in the astrological community, but by non-astrologers mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think if there's any equivalent to that in modern times, but I can't. Mm. It's like if Robert Hand wasn't just known in the astrological community, but you heard him being mentioned in non astrological sources, or if he was like mocked on Saturday Night Live because right. his like astrological prowess was like so widely renowned or something like that. Right. Okay. I believe yeah. you. Okay. That's a that good answer. The, that's the long answer. Okay. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you don't want to ask me. Good questions. Okay. Because I will go on like questions. a I will go, go for a mediocre. <laughs> okay. I'll go on a 20 minute digression right. okay. in order to Never answer. Mind. <laughs> okay. And we'll be here until four in the morning. Right. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> okay. All right. So back to the back to the presentation. So there's my little line graph. And so let's talk about, let's actually introduce this doctrine and let's get into it. So this is Porphyry's sort of starting point for the master of the nativity. Porphyry says that there's actually four important rulers of the chart. And here's the four important rulers. So the first one is known as the predominator, and the predominator is used to find the master of the nativity. Uh, next is the master of the nativity itself, which is the oikiodespotes. And one thing I should state at this point, and usually I think I left it out of the UAC talk because I wanted to keep moving, but um, oikiodespotes, it actually means um, oikios means like house or like home, and despotes means master. So technically, if you translated it super literally, which some translators like Robert Schmidt did or do, mm -hmm. um, and I should have mentioned him because he's the other major translation of this text. Um, and Honestly, the better translation is the one by Robert Schmidt in his book Definitions and Foundations, where he went through and he translated the work of Porphyry, but also the other fragments that survive from Antiochus of Athens, as well as some fragments by Rhetorius of Egypt in order to attempt to reconstruct the original text of Antiochus. Um, that book is a little bit hard to get, though. It's not available on Amazon or any, anything like that. Um, I mentioned Holden's, even though Holden has a less literal and to some extent less accurate translation, Holden's translation at least is widely available. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I mentioned it. So um, anyways, Schmidt and others sometimes translate this phrase very literally where it means like housemaster of the nativity. Mm -hmm. But one that's, I think it's like being overly literal and almost unnecessarily literal when the primary emphasis of it is just the notion that it's the master or the overall ruler. So that's one of the reasons why I shorten it and I use the phrase master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. But you could also equally, and some people do translate it as the house master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. You're laughing at that phrase? Yeah, I actually am. There's a <laughs> there's a musical song called Master of the House, and I'm imagining some people like picking up on that right now and okay. do a whole astrological takeoff of this. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if, yeah, we could add that music at the end. Okay. Okay. All right. So there's the master of the nativity is the second important ruler of the nativity. The third is what's called the co-master or the joint master of the nativity. Um, and we'll explain what that is later. That's the third one. And then finally, the fourth ruler is known as the lord of the nativity or the curios. 
So right away, we're running into an issue where as soon as Porphyry introduces the doctrine of the master of the nativity, he's saying there's not one overall ruler of the chart, that there's like three, no, that there's four mm -hmm. separate rulers to begin with that are important. So already we're, we're, we're running into a bit of an issue here. Right. We're already, we're, we're back to having, you know, multiple planetary rulers in the chart rather than just one. Right. So Porphyry uses an analogy at this point, which is kind of interesting and maybe kind of important, where he says that each of these different rulers um, are kind of like the different roles on like a ship, like a or or like a sailing vessel, um, where he says that it's sort of like you know how there's the difference between um, the captain of a ship versus the owner of a ship, mm -hmm. um, and maybe you could extend that to other sort of metaphors as well, like or other roles on a ship, like you know the the guy that are steering or. or you know, rowing, mm -hmm. the guy's rowing or the guy's cleaning the deck or the guy, the cook or what have you, that there's different mm -hmm. roles on the ship and different like officers associated with the ship. Right. So this may be part of a broader um, nautical metaphor that was used in ancient astrology as an interpretive principle. And there's some ambiguity about this point because we see traces of a possible nautical metaphor in certain pieces, but this statement by Porphyry is one of the few explicit statements. Um, but the problem is when you read the text, it's not clear if he's explicitly saying that ancient astrologers used a nautical metaphor or if he's simply just using an analogy in order to kind of explain what the astrologers are doing. Sure. It's not really clear and there's some ambiguity. Mm -hmm. So in my interpretation, if there was a broader nautical metaphor, and he was trying to make a one-to-one -one correspondence in that analogy. Then, in my interpretation, the master of the nativity would be like the steersman or the captain of the ship, whereas the lord of the nativity would end up being equivalent to like the owner of the ship, mm -hmm. um, based on that analogy. For reasons that we'll get into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some ambiguity on that point. We're not really clear if he's just making an analogy or if this was actually viewed as some broader interpretive principle. But if it was used as an interpretive principle, that's probably how it would have gone. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let's get into the actual calculations. So Porphyry eventually tells us how to calculate the master of the nativity. And in the first approach to finding I mean, in both approaches to finding the master of the nativity, the first thing you have to do before you can identify the master of the nativity is you first have to find what's called the predominator. And the predominator um, is essentially it's the one, it's the the planet or the point in the chart that designates the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there's three candidates for the predominator. And the three candidates for the predominator are the sun, the moon, and the ascendant. So those are your three possible candidates. So if you're thinking about your own chart right now, which pretty much every astrologer does at this point, because everybody always applies techniques to their own charts first to see mm -hmm. if they work and to sort of try to rationalize and make sense of them, which is fine. Um, those are your three candidates, your sun, your moon, or your ascendant. Mm -hmm. So the strongest 
of the two luminaries between the sun and the moon is preferred as the predominator. So if you have your two luminaries, you're looking at two luminaries, the one that's more well placed in the chart based on criteria that we'll get into in a second um, is preferred. Okay. And that planet that is the more well placed is said to be the predominator or another way you could put it, another translation of the term that's used is the victor. Mm -hmm. So this is equivalent to essentially the later medieval doctrine of the Almutin. And when you look at like Ben Dykes's translations, for example, the term Almutin is like a Latin translation, a Latin rendering or transliteration basically of an Arabic term that just means um, Ben Dykes translates it as the victor, but you can also translate it from Greek. The original Greek is the predominator. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the Greek equivalent of what eventually in later astrology when they received this doctrine became the doctrine of the, the um, Almutin basically. Okay. All right, so the strongest luminary is preferred, and that becomes the predominator, the victor of the chart, if one of them is more well placed than the other. However, if both luminaries are weak or are not well placed in the chart, then you end up defaulting to the ascendant. So the ascendant is not one of your primary um, possibilities, but instead it's sort of like the fallback position if both of the luminaries are poorly placed in the chart. Mm -hmm. All right, so part of the premise of the predominator seems to be that it's supposed to represent the life force and the vitality of the native. And that's one of the reasons why they're trying to find, or that appears to be, in, in, from what I can tell, in sort of inferring what's going on here, that seems to be one of the reasons why they're focused on only a really well-placed planet. Because it has to be the planet that's, that's well-placed enough to be able to represent and show the vitality and the life force of the native. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it's not, if like everything's poorly placed, then it almost doesn't matter because they believed that the native wouldn't live very long anyways, or or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's when we you start getting into the crossover with the length of life technique, mm -hmm. where the predominator becomes very important. Right, that makes sense. So here's the three. There's three factors um, that you take into account, which can make one of the luminaries the victor or the predominator. The first one is, so you're trying to decide between the sun and the moon, which one's capable of being the predominator or the victor. And the first consideration you take into account is that the one that matches the sect of the chart um, is preferred or is favored over the one that does not match the sect of the chart. Mm -hmm. So the luminary that's of the sect in favor or the luminary that's contrary to the sect in favor, the luminary that's of the sect in favor is preferred. Right. So that means you're going to prefer in a day chart by this first consideration, the sun is going to be preferred, uh, whereas in a night chart, the moon is going to be preferred. Right. So I was born in the day, daytime. I was born at like 1.28 p.m. So it was just not long after the afternoon. The sun is in the middle of the sky. Actually, let's throw up a diagram. For those that aren't for some reason familiar with the concept of sect yet, Mm -hmm. uh, which everybody, I feel like everybody should be like. Well, a lot of people are, but there's always new pe new people tuning into the podcast. Yeah, we're yeah. getting we're getting there. So, you determine if it's a day chart or a night chart by looking at the exact degrees of the ascendant, descendant axis, uh, which represent the horizon where the sun rises at the ascendant each morning and it sets at the descendant in the evening each day. 
And if the sun in your chart is anywhere above the exact degrees of the ascendant and descendant, then you have a day chart. Whereas if the sun is anywhere below the ascendant and descendant, then you have a night chart. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So sunrise to sunset, exactly. Right. Sunrise to sunset. There's a little bit of ambiguity about if the sun's like really close to the ascendant or really close to the descendant because there's a little space of time where you have that sort of in-between space mm-hmm. of twilight where it could be it's like becoming daytime or it's becoming nighttime. Right. Um, we're gonna skip over that ambiguity now because this isn't a talk on sect, yep. but let's just pretend for the sake of argument that it's something really simple like that of if the sun's anywhere in the top half of the chart, day chart, anywhere in the bottom half of the chart, night chart. Definitely. So I was born in, in the mid early afternoon, so mm-hmm. I have a day chart. So mm-hmm. the sun would be preferred according to this first criteria. Right. You were born don't don't feel like sharing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. You were born at some point. At some point, you know, during a 24 hour period. All right. Uh, astrologers that don't like sharing their charts. <laughs> um, all right. So that's criteria number one. If somebody, for example, hypothetically was born with a night chart, then we would prefer the moon. Right. Because it's nighttime. Yep. All right. Pretty simple. Um, that's condition one. Uh, criteria or condition two is the luminary that is more angular. Um, in terms of angular cadent, ang- angular succeeding cadent, the luminary that is more angular is preferred over the luminary that is more is is less angular, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So it's more operative, basically. Sure. So yeah, operative, and that's one of the terms. Chromatisticos was a term that was frequently used to describe what angularity does in ancient astrology, and that means. In like a mercantile context, it can mean like conducive to business. It's also sometimes translated as operative. It's sometimes referred to as busy, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different keywords, and that's one of the hardest terms to translate. That there's been some of the most debate about um, in some of the translations of Hellenistic texts is how to translate chromatisticos, which is the term that's used to refer to what angularity does. Right. Um, but busy is probably one of the most simple literal translations. And mm-hmm. planets were thought to be more busy when they were in angular houses. They were thought to be somewhat less busy in succeedant houses, and they were thought to be um, completely not busy or whatever the opposite of busy is, like slack, idle, idle yeah. um, when they were in cadent houses. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're looking at a chart and you have, you know, your two luminaries, your second criteria that you want to pay attention to. Is um, you know which one is angular and which one is uh, succeedent and which one is cadent, mm-hmm. or you know whichever of the, those placements they are. Right. The one that's in a more angular house will win out and become the predominator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get more into that later. So number three or condition number three is the one that is more eastern, more towards the east side of the chart, which is towards the rising sign, since the ascendant is in the east, mm-hmm. um, is preferred over the luminary that is over on the right side of the chart towards the descendant, which is the west. Mm-hmm. So the main thing that you have to remember is just ascendant is the east or is eastern, and uh, descendant is west or western, which is is actually like basic astronomy in terms of like the basic observational astronomy associated with astrology. But mm-hmm. you know, astrology is kind of 
becomes so abstracted and so removed from the astronomy at this point that astrologers sometimes don't know that sort of distinction. Right. So here's a diagram that shows the ascendant basically being associated with the east and the descendant being associated with the west. And according to this third criteria, which I'm kind of summarizing from Porphyry, or the way that Porphyry actually kind of summarizes the doctrine, is that the luminary that's more on the eastern side of the chart, which is essentially the left side of the chart, is preferred over the luminary that is more on the right side of the chart or in the western side of the chart. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think when I first um, heard about this whole entire concept of the master, the nativity, I thought it sounded like overly complicated upon first glance. But then when you think about each of the principles, each of those first three principles, like they do follow just kind of basic common sense of some of the astrological rules about what would be kind of like strong in a chart. Yeah. Well, and that's it's like one of the things we have to realize is like we know that now in retrospect that it's like oh yeah like angularity for example is something that's still around in astrology and that's a mm-hmm. doctrine that still exists but part of the reason it's weird because part of the reason that that still survives as a concept in western astrology 2000 years later is actually in some ways because this ancient doctrine about the master of the nativity survived and that this was a core piece of it and the notion mm-hmm. of angularity succedency and cadency was central to it is part of the reason that that doctrine survived 2,000 years later even though we don't use it. We apply it to different things today Mm -hmm. in terms of prominence, but this is almost, if not the origin of that specific technique or concept, it's pretty um, early in terms of its popularization Mm -hmm. because it's coming from partially the foundational text of authors like Nechepso and Petasiris who seem to have Sort of created or synthesized some of these doctrines and then disseminated them widely in the ancient world so that they became so popular and so crucial uh, in the Roman Empire and the, the Mediterranean and the, the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, you know, these make sense in terms of common sense rules with traditional astrology more so. Okay. In terms of you know both the angularity that you were just talking about, but also you know the sect light being sort of more important for your your life or your chart, you know the sun during the day or the moon at night, and then if it's in the left side of the chart, it's like the planet is um, either about to rise or has just risen recently. So that right. seems stronger than like setting and becoming dark, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. That like rising, that's a good way of conceptualizing that rising over in the east. That the east is associated with rising and like ascendancy and and increase in some ways, mm-hmm. whereas perhaps the west and the descendant is no associated with sort of sinking and um, you know decrease in some sense. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So yeah, some of it's like straightforward traditional stuff like angularity or sect, whereas the eastern thing, although that's a good point that we could. Make that association, and it's a good access point for understanding it. It's not otherwise like East versus West is one that's a little bit more obscure that we're mm-hmm. not as used to using as like a core technique in astrology. Certainly not in modern astrology. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Um, and that's actually tied into, and that might be a good like digression because you were asking me the other day, like yesterday, about um, that doctrine of and where where or how old that doctrine is of like planets being. In the ascendant or the midheaven indicating events in the first part of the life, mm-hmm. whereas placements in the descendant and the IC being indicative of events 
later in the second part of life, right? Right. And we had a whole conversation about that and how that actually seems to be one of the earliest doctrines that either was like a precursor to the doctrine of the 12 houses or was introduced like super early around the same time and was part of the basic sort of conceptual framework that then the 12 houses was built on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. All right. So, um, all right. So let's keep moving. So those are our these are our three sets of criteria for um, calculating the master of the nativity. So one of the things already at this point that we have to make a point of talking about and is a little bit of a digression, but not hugely, and is kind of interesting. And this is a point where we have to return back to a topic that's come up at different points in the podcast. And this is something I've been meaning to come back to because it's been part of a long-term research project for me over the years, which is the issue of house division and specifically the question of why are there so many different forms of house division and um, why has this been sort of a debate or a di disagreement for astrologers for a long time, but also something I tried to address in a chapter of my book was when did this debate first arise and why did it first arise? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it's within the context of this technique of the master of the nativity that some of those debates surrounding house division may have actually gotten their start mm -hmm. or may have gotten started. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the observations that you one of the things that you can see that's really obvious when you read those, let's say, 10 or 20 or 30 Hellenistic astrological texts that survive from um, basically from the Roman Empire is that most of the time um, authors like Vadius Valens, for example, are using whole sign houses, um, especially in their example charts. So Valens has over a hundred example charts, and in almost all of them, he uses whole sign houses. Mm -hmm. And he's not just doing that like abstractly for the purpose of like demonstration or for idealized examples or something like that, because a lot of his example charts wouldn't work and wouldn't make sense. Like the point that he tries to make with the chart wouldn't make sense if you switch to another form of house division. Mm -hmm. So he literally must have believed and must have used that as his primary form of house division in order to explain why those hundred plus examples that he uses throughout his nine different books would make any sense. So most of the time he uses whole sign houses. However, when he gets to the point where he starts talking about calculating the predominator, and when he introduces in book three of the anthology the length of life technique, the technique that incorporates the predominator in order to attempt to um, calculate the length of a person's life, which ancient astrologers considered to be not just possible, but a very important technique that you needed to use um, to some extent with clients. Um, Valens and other astrologers at this point, when they get to the length of life technique and they start talking about the predominator, that tends to be when they will introduce the other forms of house division of what I call degree-based forms of house division, mm -hmm. which includes um, equal houses, which is a degree-based form of house division, but also uh, quadrant house systems. Mm -hmm. So 
it's at this point. So Valens introduces quadrant houses. He actually introduces the porphyry house system when he starts talking about calculating the predominator, which is interesting because it's like elsewhere, this is in book three of the anthology. And if you back up to book two, where he starts using example charts, he uses several dozen example charts, all using whole sign houses. But then for some reason, when he gets to this specific technique of calculating the predominator, he, then he stops and he introduces quadrant houses for the first time. And what's interesting is he he introduces it as if it's a concept that he wasn't otherwise using up to that point, or that required being used or being introduced, because the the reader wouldn't be taking it for granted up till that point. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like it's something unique to this technique in a way that he's introducing within the context of this spe this specific technique is quadrant houses. Mm -hmm. So interestingly. Ptolemy does something simple or, or something similar where basically um, in Ptolemy, most of the time in his text, he when he's just he refers to the houses in passing, and he seems to often refer to them as signs as if he's using whole sign houses, just like Valens is mm -hmm. in most of the other like different topical chapters of his book, like when he when he talks about like children or marriage or career or what have you he seems to refer to the 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 houses the 12 houses as if they're signs but then all of a sudden just like Malins when he gets to the length of life technique he introduces this other form of house division where he stops and suddenly becomes very deliberate about outlining this other approach mm -hmm. and historically there's actually been a lot of debates about what system of house division Ptolemy introduced at this point but the two modern translators who have commented on this are Robert Schmidt and James Holden, who are two of the only modern astrologer, contemporary astrologers in modern times. Both of them have passed away in the past few years now. Um, but they're two of the only people that uh, read Greek and translated this chapter of Ptolemy so that they could, you know, be able to say something about it. And they both said that they thought that Ptolemy was introducing equal houses at this point based on their reading of the Greek. Mm. Uh, but it was kind of a weird modified form of house of equal houses where it started five degrees above the ascendant. Mm. So it was the it's the it's it sounds weird, but it's it's the ancestor of and it's the origin of the modern like five degree rule where okay, yeah. astrologers will say, well, if a planet is within five degrees of the cusp of a house, then you interpret it as being in the next house, or you interpret it as being in both houses, or whatever. Right. You know, it sort of varies, but that's the ancestor of this is going back to Ptolemy. And in this chapter on the length of life technique, Ptolemy introduces what seems to be equal houses, but he says that it begins where the power of the house extends five degrees before. The actual starting point, mm -hmm. so five degrees above the ascendant. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this is strange in and of itself, and this is important in terms of the history of the house division. And I, I go over this whole thing of it. I go through this whole thing talking about this in um, my chapter because I wrote like a long chapter on house division, and I forgot to mention that this talk. So I gave this talk at Norwalk two years ago for the first time, and I gave it at UAC 
also, which was the, the main target, the final time I, I meant to give it. Mm -hmm. But it was like a two-part talk. So it was like this talk, and then I was also I gave a talk on the origins of the house division issue in ancient astrology. Um, so it's kind of like a sister talk or companion talk for with this where I expand upon that this issue a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that's something I want to record as a podcast as well at some point to follow up on this one. So I guess for people in the future, you'll be able to listen to that, but at some point, but for those listening to it now in the present, as soon as I release that, you'll have to wait for me to expand on this more in the future. Right. Anyway, so the fact that they both introduce this um you know, degree-based form of house division at this point when they're talking about the predominator and calculating it. Um, I think what happened is there was probably like it took me a while, and in my book, which I published in early 2017, I sort of I had the right idea and I was going in the right direction where I speculated that it seems like they were both drawing on the Pedasiris text, which was their common source. And that was the reason why both of them would introduce a form of degree-based form of house division at this point. It was because the text that they were drawing on must have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they must have been like following after that example by then introducing it. But there must have the fact that they they diverge and they introduce two different forms of degree-based form of house division, I speculated must have meant that there was some sort of ambiguity in the text about which form of, of house division um it should be introduced. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why that makes a little bit of sense that there would be ambiguity is that the ancient authors, especially Valens, but also other authors, are constantly complaining about how um, cryptic the Nechepso and Pedasiris text is. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly complaining about it as if it was written in some sort of weird coded language. And part of the issue uh, where we have some fragments that Valens and other authors preserve is that parts of the text may have been written in verse mm. so that it was written almost like in the form of an instructional poem, right. which can make it sort of hard to read and not very straightforward, but instead has this sort of like artistic flair to it. Right. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that it may have been tied in with some mystery traditions so that it was deliberately, in some mystery traditions, they would be deliberately sort of obscure or like difficult in their writings in order to make things um in order to give it like a a barrier to entry sure so that those who were like not initiates of the secret mystery school even if they got their hands on the text couldn't understand mm -hmm. it yeah that makes sense and Valens, when he quotes, if you read book 7 of Valens, he has some like really long quotes from Nechepso and it's just like super bizarre weird wording and weird terminology that even for Valens was hard to understand. So even for Valens who's living in, in the 2nd century CE, he's like, I don't fully know what this means, but this is what I think it means. Or at one point, for example, he quotes this passage from, he quotes a couple of passages from Nechepso and Pedasiris on how to calculate the lot of fortune. And it's really weird wording that could be interpreted a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. And he says as much that different authors, different astrologers, later astrologers like him who read this passage have come to different conclusions about what it means, which is funny because then that actually means some of the debates about how to calculate the lot of fortune and whether to reverse the calculation for the lot of fortune for day and night charts mm -hmm. grew out of 
these debates about how to read the Nechepsopetasuris text. Right. And so you have you see some authors like Ptolemy saying, no, you shouldn't reverse the calculation of the lot of fortune by day and night. You should always use the day calculation. And then you have other astrologers like Valens and Dorotheus apparently reversing it for day and night charts. Mm -hmm. So it's growing out of textual ambiguity on what were like cryptic or mysterious source texts from the first century BCE. Right. Yeah, that's um I would definitely do that if I was writing something. I would I would definitely write it cryptically so people would be like arguing about it for several thousand years. Yeah. Well, it's really tough and Valens, it's funny because I, I quote this passage from Valens in my book where he throws up his hands at one point figuratively is like either these guys are just being and he's talking about a chip so he's like either this guy is just being difficult and cryptic in order to make this this doctrine as difficult to understand as possible, or mm. he doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> at all, right? And which is really funny to read in this like second century author writing in Greek from like the year one seventy five, that even though to to us Valens is our ancient from almost two thousand years ago, it's like Valens himself was drawing on what he thought to be his ancients, which were texts that were written a few centuries before he lived, right? So. We know that that was an issue already with things like the Lot of Fortune, but it seems like it was also an issue here. And I think this is one of the primary origins of the House Division debate is that it was because they were all introducing the forms of the, the degree based forms of House Division when they started calculating the predominator. It's because they were drawing on the Pedestrius text, and the Pedestrius text must have had some ambiguities. In that it was clear that you were supposed to use some sort of degree-based form of house division within the context of this technique, mm -hmm. but it wasn't clear enough about which one to use. Mm -hmm. So that's as far as I got, and that's how I set it up in my book. But at some point in the past two years, um, after my book came out, I figured out when I was working on this talk for UAC and for Norowac what the ambiguity, what what the final ambiguity was. That must have caused the most debate. And I think it was that third criteria in the, the criteria that Porphyry outlines on calculating the predominator. And it's that one that has to do with East versus West. Mm -hmm. So the technique, um, and in Valens, actually, I should state in the Antiochus summary and in Valens, both of them outline rules for calculating the predominator and like. If the sun is in the first and the moon is in the ninth, then the sun is the predominator. Or if the moon is in the eleventh and the sun is in whatever, then the moon is the predominator. Um, Antiochus and Porphyry and um, Valens both outline a set of rules for determining this, and they're not drawing on each other, which means that must be the original source text. They must be paraphrasing the Porphyry text or, or the original Pedasiris text. Mm -hmm. So in that text, it uses this vague directional language where it talks about instead of saying like first house, seventh house, tenth house, it says if a planet is rising in the east um, and another planet is declining in the west, then the one rising in the east is predominator. Mm -hmm. And when you read Antioch, the Antiochus summary, it keeps it just uses that vague language like that of directional language. But when you read the same rules in balance, he translates it and he says when one planet is in the first house, another planet is in the seventh house. So it's clear that Valens understood that to be referring to the houses, and he just translates it into that language. 
but the original text used this really weird, vague directional language that talked about directionality and about angularity. So the debate that I realized at one point that they must have had is whether to read references to east and west as super literal or to read them more figuratively, more broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, because the problem is that when you get into the degree-based forms of house division, technically it's only quadrant houses that divides the chart, strictly speaking, into east and west because the degree of the quadrant midheaven is actually the dividing point between east and west. Right. So I have a few diagrams that sort of illustrate this a little bit. So one of these, and this is from the, the house division talk. So one of these, it shows the three different midheavens. And I spent a lot of time going on into this in the book and eventually when I record that other podcast, because that was the thing is I'm I'm recording re-recording these now because um the audio in my UAC, my talks from the United Astrology Conference didn't come out well. Mm-hmm. Like one of them wasn't great at all. And then the microphone died like halfway through the house division talk. So mm-hmm. we didn't get a good recording from that. So that's why I'm re-recording these here and then I'm going to release them as podcasts because I feel like the information is important and I want to get it out there as sort of broadly as possible. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's a diagram that shows the three different midheavens. So the way to look at this is that one because the astrologers, they would use the term midheaven, um, but they would use it. Some of the ambiguity in reading the ancient texts is some, sometimes they would use the term midheaven and they would be referring to the 10th whole sign house or the 10th sign from the rising sign. So sometimes they'd call the entire 10th sign the midheaven. Right. Other times, midheaven means the 90 degree point, the point that it is exactly 90 degrees upwards in the chart relative to the degree of the ascendant mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. that's that's the equal house midheaven mm-hmm. so in equal houses you start from the degree of the ascendant then you measure 30 degrees downwards and that first 30 degree increment is the first house then the 30 degrees after that is the second house and you just keep going around but you use the degree of the ascendant as the starting point yeah exactly so in that approach the 90 degree point, 90 degrees upwards is the midheaven. So what's interesting about that point is that's actually always the highest spot on the ecliptic. And that's one of the things that I am demonstrating here in this, mm-hmm. in this image. Um, and I had two, some help from actually two friends. So Gemini Brett, I think, is the one who helped me put this diagram together, mm-hmm. who I'd previously done a, a podcast on astronomy for astrologers. And he has some great talks getting into the observational astronomy and some of this that I'd recommend Mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing they'll refer to as the midheaven is essentially the equal house midheaven. And then of course, the third thing that they'll refer to as the midheaven is the quadrant house midheaven. And there's different ways of describing what the quadrant house midheaven is, but one of the ways of describing it that's important is it's literally the dividing line between uh, east and west. Okay. So the the issue and the thing that it took me a long time to wrap my mind around this, but the ascendant, even though it's sort of due east, it's not exactly in the east. The ascendant is not always exactly east. 
and the descendant is not always exactly west. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of need like an animated video, which I don't have right now in order to explain that properly. But you just have to like understand that even though the ascendant is in the east or towards the east, it's not exactly in the east and the descendant is not exactly in the west. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, however, the uh, quadrant house midheaven, the meridian, uh, which is like the north-south axis, is essentially what the quadrant house midheaven is. Mm-hmm. So one of the takeaways then, or one of the important pieces, is it means the quadrant house midheaven is more tied into the directionality of east versus west, whereas the um, the equal house midheaven and to some extent the tenth whole sign house are more tied into what is the highest point on the ecliptic at any or the zodiac. Let's say, in other words, at any one moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So um, the debate or the ambiguity, I think, came in here, which is that the Pedasirus text was talking about if a planet is rising in the east um, and another planet is like declining in the west, then Planet A is the predominator. And the question they, I think that the astrologers ran into the question it was um, are we talking about East and West in general terms, in the sense that the ascendant is kind of in the East and the descendant is kind of in the West? Or are we, so like this, for example, if you throw up this diagram where it's just like the first house is kind of associated with the East and the seventh house is kind of associated with the West, mm-hmm. um, or so. So that would be a more loose interpretation of the Pedasirius text, right? Um, or do we? Did they? Did the original authors intend this, strictly speaking, to mean exactly in the East and the West? In which case, it's only in quadrant houses that that would actually work, mm-hmm. because the the midheaven in quadrant houses. One of the things that it is is it's the dividing line between east and west. Right. So that's why somebody like Valens might have deliberately introduced um, quadrant houses at this point because he's reading this source text that says if a planet's in the east, then it's preferred over a planet in the west. Mm-hmm. In which case, you really want to know exactly where the dividing line is between east and west in order to make that determination. Right. Conversely. Somebody like Ptolemy, evidently, if it's true that he was using quadrant or using equal houses, he may have um, interpreted it a little bit more broadly and a little bit less literally um, in a more generic sense, just to mean like um, he may have used equal houses and just said east is the sort of left side of the chart or the, the houses associated with the left side of the chart in equal houses. Whereas west is the right side of the chart and the houses associated with the right side of the chart in equal houses. So he's still using a degree based form of house division where the degree of the ascendant is the starting point of the first house and the degree of the descendant is the starting point of the seventh house. But then there would have been um, a little bit more ambiguity about the tenth house using equal houses, not being tied in exactly to east and west, but instead east and west being tied more into the ascendant and descendant in that approach. Mm-hmm. All right. Have I have I lost you completely? Have I oh lost no, I'm everyone? actually following all of this. Um, but it's just kind of crazy how much. Well, and I, I do think we should keep moving on after this. But I am 
But it is crazy how much can hinge on like a single word or two words, you know? I know. And two things, it's like one, it's the same thing with a lot of fortune. Mm -hmm. And we can see right. that and that's really well documented. And yeah. we also know even in modern times, because even if like contemporary astrologers or 20th century astrologers didn't really know what the hell to do with the, the lot of fortune, mm -hmm. there was some awareness because Ptolemy's text survived that there were some astrologers and some later astrologers like William Lilly in the 17th century followed Ptolemy in not reversing the calculation for day and night charts. Mm -hmm. But then there was other astrologers that were influenced by the Dorotheus tradition like um, Bonatti and other astrologers like that that did reverse it for day and night charts. Mm -hmm. And all of that really does potentially seem to go back to potentially this ambiguous source text. So this is the first time anyone's made this argument as far as I'm aware. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited about it and wanted to present it at UAC, which is like the biggest conference, one of the biggest conferences of the decades last year, mm -hmm. because I thought I I still think I've pretty much figured out part of this is not like the entire story when it comes to house division and there's other pieces, but that this is part of where some of the great debates and ambiguity over house division come from is some of the debates over interpreting the language in this ambiguous source text that first introduced the length of life technique. Mm -hmm. And then in so many subsequent Hellenistic and medieval and Renaissance astrologers who then also tried to calculate, if not the length of life technique itself, at least tried to calculate like the master of the nativity or the overall ruler of the chart and were influenced by doctrines like this, they were all in some ways sort of influenced by it in some some way, if even if indirectly. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So isn't that crazy though? I mean, that's one of the things that blows my mind is the idea that the whole house division debate for the past 2000 years could be partially motivated initially by uh, what is fundamentally like a textual debate mm -hmm. or, or like a textual ambiguity. Right. Yeah. Which that is pretty crazy. And also in terms of, you know, like where it's introduced and when and for what purposes and the different you know how systems could conceivably at least be meant for different purposes or something like that right yeah yeah and and it's like right away in the early commentators on ptolemy really quickly there's like a debate because if you read the text of hephaestu of thebes who lived somewhere in the early 5th century it's like ptolemy was in the mid 2nd century but already by the time of hephaestu a few centuries later like ptolemy is a big deal and a bunch of astrologers, several astrologers have written like commentaries on Ptolemy's astrological text and started to have debates over what form of house division Ptolemy intended. Um, because then there starts being debates about his, you know, text. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about like the uh, later generation, not even the Nishapso Petasiris text, but then there's debates over what Ptolemy himself said. Right. And that generated a lot of spilled ink about that chapter of Ptolemy and whether he was intending. An equal house um, division, which at first Hephaestus says that seems to be what Ptolemy was outlining, but then later he cites a commentator on Ptolemy named Pancarius, who argued that Ptolemy actually intended to introduce quadrant houses at this point, mm -hmm. and you know, there, and then, so then there ends up being a bunch of debates about that, and it's really interesting, and you can read that in Hephaestus in the fifth century, but it just spawns out of this just like tons and tons of debates about 
house division. And what's fascinating is just a lot of it's more textually based rather than being something that's um, based or motivated initially in some of these texts, at least by by like practicality or something, mm-hmm. or, sure. or like experience or empiricism or something. Right, right. Sure. So one of the things I will say about the empirical angle and about what some of them may have been going for by introducing what the Neshepso and Pedasiris text might have been going for in introducing some form of um, degree-based form of house division at this point is they were really focused on planets reaching the degrees of angles or reaching important astronomical points um, being at the height of their power. And it's because of the fact that this whole discussion is taking place within the context of the predomination argument where they're trying to find the planet that is victorious and that is powerful in the chart and that's powerful enough to represent the life force and the vitality of the native. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why they switched to the degree-based forms of house division here because if you think about the degree of the ascendant, which is the starting point of the first house both in equal houses as well as in quadrant houses, the degree of the ascendant is the point at which the planets rise over the horizon and emerge from underneath the earth. Right. And in fact, that entire first house in quadrant houses or equal houses is the point where the planet is rising up and getting ready to emerge sort of into visibility in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. So visibility in this context being almost like another sort of alternate way to say power or importance or you know, predomination or what have you. Right. Um, the same is somewhat true. Uh, for the quadrant house midheaven, um, because the other thing that the quadrant house midheaven does is it actually is the point at which the planets reach their highest elevation in the sky. So the quadrant house midheaven is not just the it's not just the dividing point between east and west, but the quadrant house midheaven is also the point at which planets reach their highest elevation. Mm-hmm. So again, that could be the reason why some astrologers like Valens or potentially the original Nechepso and Pedasiris text, if they intended quadrant houses to be used, this could be the reason why they're introducing quadrant houses at this point because they're really focused on the notion of the planets being um, at their highest power or being the most powerful and they're associating the exact degrees of the angles and these astronomical points when they're at their most um, visible in some sense mm-hmm. as being also their most powerful. Yeah, definitely. That would make sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And mm-hmm. it's pretty straightforward. And yeah. But what's interesting about that is then we start to really understand where this debate about house division came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bit of an issue because, and this is what I'll get into at some point later in the house division talk, is that there's different equally valid arguments for why the quadrant house midheaven has astronomical and symbolic importance, but also why the equal house and the whole sign house midheaven have their own independent symbolic importance because the equal house midheaven, which is always in the 10th whole sign house, is the highest point on the ecliptic. Mm-hmm. So, or, or let me put that another way because astrologers aren't used to, unfortunately, like the term ecliptic. So the equal house midheaven and the tenth whole sign house midheaven essentially or the sign um, those are the highest spot in the zodiac at any one time mm-hmm. whereas 
the when a planet hits the degree of the quadrant house midheaven, that's when it hits its highest elevation. Mm -hmm. So we have a difference between in importance symbolically between the planets being at their highest elevation versus like the signs of the zodiac being at their highest elevation, and sort of seeing how um, each of those could have its own independent, not just validity, but like symbolic significance. How you know a planet being at its highest point might be symbolically significant versus the sign of the zodiac that's at its highest point when a person is born, also having some symbolic significance, mm -hmm. and why there's like ambiguity then about. You know, people wanting to say like this one's more important or this one's more important when they both might have importance in some sense, and that's some of the core of where why the house division argument becomes so tense. It's because mm -hmm. both sides have valid points of view that are valid to some extent, mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. But because each side. Has seen it working because they both see mm -hmm. parts of that work in some way. They think the other side must be wrong, or and nobody's figured out how to synthesize those two yet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Was that a long enough digression? I, uh, <laughs> I think that's a really valid point that you should go into in the other podcast. <laughs> All right, and I will. But it's such a crucial piece of this because no, this definitely. truly is, and that's why I want to have a long digression on it. This truly is. It's not like the entirety of the I'm not going to pretend as if it's the entirety of the reason for the house division debate or it's it's and it's not the only independent reason for each system of house division which may have other origins that feed into this but definitely textually that's one of the arguments that I feel like it can make very strongly and I think is very clear at this point is this is part of um, where the house division debate comes from is going back to the source text of Petasiris and the calculation of the predominator and the length of life technique and the later generations of astrologers drawing on that and trying to interpret that and sometimes coming to different conclusions about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> I completely agree, and we're tracking to have a four-hour podcast. <laughs> are we really? How long is well, it? Been? I don't know. I don't have my phone in front okay, of me. We are one hour and twenty-two minutes. Okay. All right. We'll keep going. Okay. All right. So at this point, I want to move into some examples from Porphyry because Porphyry doesn't just outline that stuff abstractly, but he actually um, gives us some examples of like how it works, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. All right. So here are the examples from Porphyry. He says. Um, if you have a chart where the sun is in the first house, and again, this is presumably using either quadrant houses or um, equal houses. I have it kind of just as a diagram here set up so that it almost looks like it's using um, whole, sign. whole sign houses. Mm -hmm. But let's just say for the sake of argument, just to remember, because part of it is that there's such ambiguity that I want to be careful mm -hmm. about. I do tend to think that it was probably quadrant houses that was intended, but that's like an interpretation of mine, and that's also following the route that Valens went mm -hmm. in this, um, where he introduces porphyry houses. So, but but I want to leave that. I still want to leave that a little bit ambiguous because we can't say for sure because we don't have the original source text and we don't know the intentions of those authors. Right. And obviously, even the ancient authors debated this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, porphyry says. If the sun is in the first house, 
and it's a day chart, which would mean the sun would have to be either basically exactly conjunct the ascendant or just above the degree of the ascendant, but still interpreted as if it's in the first house mm -hmm. using quadrant houses, then the sun is the predominator just automatically. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, because it's like it's angular, because mm -hmm. it's in the first house, which right. is one of the angular houses. The angular houses are first, fourth, seventh, and tenth. Yep. So it's angular. It's um, it's the sect light. It's the sect light because mm -hmm. it's a day chart. So yeah. the sun is preferred in a day chart. Mm -hmm. And finally, it's literally the most east it can get because it's in the first house and it's conjunct the ascendant, which is associated with the east. Mm -hmm. So it fits all three criteria. So it's just automatically. Regardless of where else the moon is in the chart, doesn't matter because the sun would be the predominator in this instance. Right. Yeah. And this is going to be like the easiest example because this is very clear cut. Right. Yeah. All right. So the next example that Porphyry gives is he says if it's a night chart and the moon is in the first house, mm -hmm. then the moon is automatically the predominator. Mm -hmm. So basically the same, same rationale, same but just reversed. Um, so in this one, we don't know where the sun is. We just know that it would have to be somewhere in the bottom half of the chart, low enough below the ascendant descendant axis, so that it's not we're not running into the twilight issue. And so it's definitely a night chart. Right. So let's say if the sun was like in the fourth house or the fifth house, the moon it would definitely be a night chart, and the moon would be the predominator. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next example Porphyry gives, he says, if you have a day chart. Where the sun is in the ninth house, while the moon is either in the first house or the second house, then the moon is the predominator. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what's interesting is that the moon is the two things we can tell about the moon is that the moon is more angular because it's in either an angular house, which is the first, or a or a succedent house. The succedent houses being the second, fifth, eighth, and eleventh. Mm -hmm. Um. And those two houses, an angular or a succedent house, are more angular, more close to an angle or rising up towards an angle than the sun is in a cadent house in the ninth. Right. The cadent houses being the third, sixth, ninth, and twelfth. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting in this case is that angularity and being more eastern actually trumps the sect of the chart. Mm -hmm. So it's like despite the fact that it's a day chart and the sun is like of the sect in favor, um, that doesn't seem to win out over being more eastern and being more angular. Right. And that's actually interesting because one of the recurring themes that we'll notice through the rest of the examples that Porphyry gives is that sect seems to be like the lowest of the factors to take into account. And angularity seems to be the primary factor that they take into account the most or that they put the most emphasis on, mm -hmm. which is interesting and again goes back to and is important in terms of the whole issue of house division and using like some degree-based form of house division within the context of this technique. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next example that Porphyry gives is he says. Um, in an, if you have a night chart where the moon is in the ninth house and the sun is in the second house, then the sun is the predominator. Is that the right slide for that? Uh, no. Okay. There we go. Okay, there it is. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Night chart, moon in the ninth house, sun in the second house, then the sun becomes the predominator. So again, it's kind of like an extension of the logic that we saw in the previous 
example where the sun is more angular because it's in a succedent house, which is better than the moon being in a cadent house, mm -hmm. or what's also called a declining house. That's why it says decline. Mm -hmm. That's what cadent means is declining. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting in this one because we're in, yeah, with something with the ninth versus the second because the ninth is normally thought of as more of a good house than I feel like the maybe the second, you know, right, in other ways. The ninth aspects by a trine, the first house and right. the ascendant, whereas the second house doesn't make a major aspect of the first house, so that it's sometimes almost considered to be one of the the challenging or the bad houses. Right, or at least a not great house. So it's interesting that really what seems to be being prioritized here is that it the planet is about to rise or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it really like angularity really does seem over and over again as you go through the examples, seems to be be their primary criteria for this, mm -hmm. which really just goes back to then and emphasizes why either quadrant houses or equal houses were introduced at this point within the context of this technique because they're really emphasizing angularity. Right. And that must have been one of the major things that the ancient sources really understood and took from reading the text, even if it was ambiguous, that it's really focused on angularity in this context. Mm -hmm. Whereas the doctrine that you're talking about, about um, the good and bad houses has more to do with it's almost more based on um, whole sign houses and sign based aspects mm -hmm. in terms of like which houses aspect or will always aspect the rising sign. Right, exactly. And that dictating which houses are good and bad so that the, the houses that aspect through a major aspect, the first house, are like the third, fourth, fifth, seventh, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, and all of those aspect the first house and therefore signify good things. Whereas mm -hmm. the houses that don't aspect the first house, the second, sixth, Eighth and twelfth signify more negative or challenging things. Right. Which it's like using sign based aspects and using whole sign houses, that makes sense and is like logical and relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. But using quadrant houses, it doesn't make quite make sense because the houses can shift and distort so yeah. that you know, certain houses are not always aspecting other houses. Yeah, definitely. So it's like in that framework. Angularity makes more sense because you do have planets like rising up towards or declining away from mm -hmm. certain angles. Right. And that notion of like rising up towards or moving away from is key to the idea of angularity. Mm -hmm. But using the other approach of like good and bad houses, it seems to be more tied into that sign based framework. Yeah, definitely. So this again like explains some of the ambiguity and some of you know what the hell happened with the house division issue in ancient astrology is we had different competing frameworks that were getting like merged together mm -hmm. but were sometimes coming at it from like different reference systems that weren't like fully compatible or that had sort of in incompatibilities or inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So that's that example. Next example, because he keeps going through a few examples, and they're useful because they illustrate the point. And once you've gone through enough of the examples, you can kind of get the gist of it and apply it to the rest of the possibilities from there. Mm -hmm. So the next one, Porphyry says, if the sun and moon are below the horizon, thus it's a night chart. If the moon, he says, is angular in an angular or succedent house, then the moon is predominator. So this would pretty much then just be if the sun is like in the fourth house making it a night chart and the moon is either in the fourth or the fifth house 
Yeah, then, mm-hmm. then the moon's the predominator. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty straightforward where sect is playing more of a role there. Their, their sect is starting to actually play a more significant role, right? Right, yeah. And the moon could be in the second too, right, in theory? Yeah, like there's a little bit of ambiguity there, so I didn't add that. But yeah, mm-hmm. the moon theoretically, I think in this one, because he doesn't say, I don't think he says fourth or fifth, I think he says angular mm-hmm. succedence. Yeah. I tried to make the diagrams so that it would reflect more the one that was absolutely clear. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. All right. Um, and then the next example, he says, if both luminaries are under the earth, thus you know, it's automatically going to be a night chart, mm-hmm. but the sun is angular, mm-hmm. and the only way that would work, or the main way that would work, is if it was in the fourth house, right? And the moon was in a cadent house, and the two cadent houses that are below the horizon are the third house and the sixth house. Yep. Then he says the sun would be the predominator. Mm-hmm. So this is a nice contrast with the previous example where we got one where the moon wins out. This is right. one where the sun can win out. In a night chart, even mm-hmm. if it's in the fourth house, which is essentially like right in the middle of the night, right, yeah. where you would otherwise consider the the moon to be in her greatest power in terms of sect, mm-hmm. but here it's like the angularity of the sun wins out over the cadency of the moon. Right. So again, just re-emphasizing that there, whatever ancient author came up with this source, I guess the Pedasiris text really was was hyper focused on angularity within this context. Right. All right, and then finally, I think there's one last example, and he says, if you have a day chart where the sun and the moon are both cadent in the ninth house, thus both luminaries are cadent, then the ascendant becomes the predominator. So the final thing I get from this final example is that cadency is seen as so problematic within the context of this technique that anytime both luminaries are cadent, the ascendant automatically becomes the predominator. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you de- default to the ascendant and the ascendant becomes the predominator. Right. So that's the predominator and that's pretty much how the predominator is calculated. And you can pretty much summarize that or put that together pretty simply with a few basic rules that Porphyry summarizes and I have broken down into like simple statements here, which is that in general, the predominator is the luminary that is more angular, primarily. Angularity is the most important key one. Mm-hmm. The one that is more eastern towards the left side of the chart versus the right side of the chart. And then third and evidently the least important consideration, but still taken into account, is the one that is more in accord with the sect of the chart, which is the sun at a day chart or the moon at a night chart. Mm-hmm. But that ultimately angularity is so important that regardless of being Eastern or Western, and regardless of sect, if both luminaries are cadent in a cadent house, then the ascendant is automatically the predominator. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think if there's a tie, like that sect wins out? If there's a tie. Yeah, like if yeah. they're equally angular and equally. Well, because I think that was the one that. Eastern. Like I'm trying to think if there's something I'm missing, but I'm pretty sure that that's the point of the fourth house example mm. where they were both they said if like the sun is in the fourth and the moon is either in the fourth or the fifth then the sun becomes predominator 
I mean, so that means they could not. No, this one, the moon, right? Or, or sorry, yeah, the, yeah. the moon becomes the predominator. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an instance to me where sect, they're equal mm -hmm. for the most part. They're both angular in the fourth house. Yeah. But because they're both below the horizon, that means it's a night chart. Yeah. So that's the instance when they're both equal in terms of angularity. Mm hmm. Like where they basically have to be in the same house mm -hmm. in order for that to work, in order for the sect to be one way, and for them to both be in the same house, mm -hmm. that's when sect becomes the deciding factor. Mm -hmm. But that's like kind of a rare case. Sure. Or somewhat rare. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm starting. I don't know if you want me to go further or just move on with that because I'm like no, starting I mean, if to you have any thoughts. Yeah, just it made me think of like um, if they're equally, um, uh, say, like they're both succedent or they're both angular or something. Then do you deal with the specific degrees of angularity or you know away from the ascendant or something like that? I mean, that is a fine question. <laughs> Unfortunately, our source texts do not tell us. Okay. So yeah. that's one of those lovely open-ended questions that the ancient astrologers themselves ran into mm -hmm. in dealing with and wrestling with this doctrine, which is what form of house division should we use? Right. The source text is not clear. Yeah, We've got to come to our own conclusions. And different astrologers evidently came to different conclusions, which cre created competing and variant traditions. Mm -hmm. So that's basically exactly what's going to happen today and mm -hmm. that's what's already happening with the revival of ancient astrology and that's one of the funny things about the revival of ancient astrology is one of the things that always happens it happened has happened many times historically and it's already starting to happen again today in the past 20 or 30 years since the revival of ancient astrology started is that in reviving the texts and in trying to interpret them Astrologers sometimes come to different conclusions, either based on textual analysis or based on trying to put the principles into practice and running into an issue where um, there's different ways that you could go with some something right. from a practical standpoint. Once you actually start taking, like you read the text, it sounds straightforward in practice, but then when you put it into practice, there's some ambiguity where it could go one way or another, and you have to make mm -hmm. a choice. Right. And some astrologers are naturally going to go one way, and other astrologers are going to go another, and it'll create variant traditions or variant schools. And some of those schools will become more popular, and some of those schools will not, for reasons, you know, sometimes that have to do with practicality or with efficacy, like of what works better. Mm -hmm. But not always. Sometimes sure. it's just the text that becomes more popular. Um, sometimes through chance or happenstance or other circumstances because right. it was promoted better, mm -hmm. that's the variant that will survive and become more popular with future generations. Right. And the other one will sometimes die out completely or sometimes will only be passed along by certain um, astrologers who may or may not have the correct approach or at least believe that they do despite whatever the majority thinks. Mm -hmm. Sure. And lots of other funny, funny things that we could get into about the history and transmission of astrology. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that was a good example of that. Thank you. All right. Um, so what's funny about this, of course, so we've gone through all of this at this point mm -hmm. uh, on this talk in the Master of the Nativity. Right. Still don't know how to calculate the Master of the Nativity because all of that was uh, for, <laughs> for finding the predominator. Right. That was the preliminary preface. Right. Yeah. Finding the predominator is like the 
preliminary step for finding the master of the nativity. Right. So the good news at this point is that um, luckily finding the master of the nativity once you've found the predominator is actually pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. So according to Porphyry, the first method of or the first variant tradition for finding the master of the nativity is he says that once you find the predominator, you can then find the master. And then he reports that there's two approaches to doing this. He says, according to the first approach, and because he gives this approach first, um, some scholars, I can't remember who, I don't know if it was Schmidt or if it was one of the academics speculated, I think probably rightly, that the first approach he gives is probably the older approach because he would usually, theoretically, just based on to the usual protocols of ancient authors, they would probably give the most ancient and authoritative one first, and then the mm -hmm. more recent or less authoritative, or maybe even the variant one that they prefer second. Mm -hmm. The first one that he gives, which is presumably the older approach, is he says, once you find the predominator, the master of the nativity is the domicile lord of the predominator. So what that means, in other words, is that the traditional planet that rules the entire zodiacal sign that the predominator is located in becomes the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. So another way to put that is basically just the planet that rules the sign of the zodiac that the sun, moon, or ascendant is located in, depending on which one is the predominator once you've calculated that, becomes the overall ruler of the chart or the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. So of course, within this context, since we're talking about ancient astrology 2,000 years ago, we're using the traditional rulerships mm -hmm. where um, you know, Saturn rules Aquarius and Jupiter rules Pisces and Mars rules Scorpio. Right. For those not familiar with that. Yeah, and that's and that's it. So that's the mm -hmm. first approach to finding the master of the nativity. You've got to go through a lot of work and there's some ambiguity in terms of um in terms of finding the predominator. And in some charts, it's gonna be more straightforward. In other charts, there might be more ambiguity. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you've done all of that work, it's pretty straightforward to find the master of the nativity. So when I first came across this doctrine, and I've been thinking about it for years now, there's a few interesting implications that just automatically come up, of course, once you get to this point. Um, one of the ones that I find the most fascinating is that it implies that many people who are born during the day may end up being more characterized by their sun sign mm -hmm. in the instances where sect ends up being the determining factor. Right. Whereas conversely, many people born at night might end up being more characterized by their moon sign, but not always. Right. Um, as we saw, sect was the least important of the three conditions, uh, and really angularity and the um, directionality emphasis were emphasized much, much more. Mm -hmm. And those are much more, um, not random, but um, variable type conditions. Yeah. So you know, it's kind of interesting though, because it means like one of the things that's really interesting to me that I always think about at this point is when it comes to like modern astrology over the past century and what it's turned into with sun sign astrology, 
one of the things that's interesting about this doctrine of the master of the nativity to me if it, if it works and if it's a valid doctrine to whatever extent to any extent is that it could explain why some people really resonate strongly with their sun sign mm-hmm. and there's some people where they take astrology like really seriously like from the start because um, it really does resonate with them in their life. And some of those people, it may be because their sun sign and the ruler of that sign is actually the master of the, their nativity. Mm-hmm. So therefore, their life would be more dominated by the qualities or the characteristics or the symbolism of that zodiacal sign. Whereas there might be some people who don't resonate with their sun sign as much. And it would be because maybe the moon sign and its ruler is the master of their nativity or their rising sign and its ruler are actually the master of their nativity. Right. So it just kind of shifts the proportion or emphasis on different pieces of the chart. I mean, it's always going to be the sun, moon, or ascendant, so one of the big three. Um, But, you know, everyone's still going to have like a sun sign and that will still matter to some extent. But, you know, what you're saying is that, you know, for some people, the sun sign will matter a lot more than the average person or the next person. Yeah, I mean the implication for me that's really interesting. On the one hand, it validates some piece of sun sign astrology in that it explains why some people really do resonate strongly with their horoscope column or mm-hmm. their sun sign. Right. And in some ways that validates that for them in some way and we could almost have a, a means of determining like why that is for certain people. Sure. Um but on the other hand, it also goes against sun sign astrology and it almost brings up what is already the classic objection that astrologers, especially once they get into astrology, like everybody goes through this phase or people often go through this phase of initially being very almost like disdainful of sun sign astrology. Mm-hmm. Right. Because once you get into like advanced, like real natal astrology that casts a full birth chart, you realize how simplistic sun sign astrology is in some way because, you know, there's a bunch of other planets and there's aspects and there's Houses and transits and all these and sinistry and all these other things that make astrology really complicated. And when you compare that to sun sign astrology, where it's just you're one of twelve signs and that's it, mm-hmm. that looks overly simplistic. Yeah. So this almost by comparison, when you look at like how complicated this doctrine is, almost makes like sun sign astrology look even more simplistic on the other side of the argument. Because if you realize that you have to go through all these hoops in order to calculate the predominator, um, and that's the one that's going to tell you which one is the more dominant luminary or if it's the ascendant, then um, you realize it's, it's actually even more complicated than astrologers know about to begin with, mm-hmm. where the sun, moon, and rising aren't even on like equal footing in any way, but instead there's one of them that might really stand out in the person's life and the ruler the the planetary ruler of that sign itself becomes the overall ruler of the chart mm-hmm. um it really creates it, it adds a whole new dimension to the entire sort of process of doing natal astrology that's a little bit underexplored at this point in time the closest like approximation that astrologers have to it is some lingering knowledge of this with astrologers using like the ruler of the ascendant mm-hmm. and modern astrologers sometimes calling that like the ruler of the chart. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's like the last 
vestiges of this doctrine that survive in modern astrology as modern astrologers referring to the ruler of the ascendant as the ruler of the chart. Mm -hmm. And that's partially coming out of like the horary tradition and the electional tradition where the ruler of the ascendant is important and is the primary significator of the querent or mm -hmm. the initiator or what have you. But it's also partially the last vestiges of this doctrine where the ruler of the ascendant is one of the candidates for the overall master of the chart. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because in this one, the um, ruler of the ascendant is the least likely to be the, you know, the candidate. Right. It's like the default or like the the. It's the fallback. The fallback. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another term for that, but I can't think of what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The backup. The backup option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and. And you know, I think I'm used to at least thinking about the ruler of the ascendant as like really primary in a chart. And so it's interesting to look at it from this vantage point where the ruler of the ascendant wouldn't very often be the candidate um, here, where it would be only if the sun and the moon were, were both cadent. Yeah, and hold that thought because that's going to come up when we get to the second variant of the master of the nativity. Right. But yeah, that is important. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, lots of interesting thoughts, lots of interesting research. And part of the, I want to mention two things really quickly that I forgot to mention earlier. One of them is the part of this presentation is to present this doctrine as intact as I can based on my research so that people then can then go out and start applying it. And I'm not going to try to pretend that I have this all worked out mm -hmm. um, because a large part of my approach over the past decade is. On the one hand, in the approach of many traditional astrologers, is there's a difference between, on the one hand, like recovering and trying to reconstruct what the ancient texts say and recover the doctrines as best as we can. And sometimes that takes work to like finesse and reconstruct what the authors were trying to say or what the original authors intended. Mm -hmm. And then the second part is like applying that in practice and seeing what works out best empirically in our opinions. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And that's a whole separate thing. And the piece of this that I'm trying to present in this lecture is primarily just this is my best understanding and trying to reconstruct this doctrine, how they calculated it, and what they were trying to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then go out and do what you will with this and research this right. because this is a recently recovered concept. These are some of the implications that I've seen. I will get into a few charts. So we'll see a little bit of empirical stuff, but not a ton because mm -hmm. it's primarily just trying to present it without imposing too many interpretations on it yet and instead leaving that for the community to start to work with in the future. Right. Yeah, and that's really important that you say that cuz I know that sometimes people, you know, listen to the podcast and they sort of take what you're talking about as, you know, like the word of what, you know, how you should practice. Right. Um and so yeah, it is important to be clear that this is more of like a a, you know, recovered thing to to play with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing I meant to mention is I partially shortened the title of master, titled it, shortened it to master of the nativity because I figured that was a cooler phrase, mm -hmm. and because I figured it's more one of the issues with translation conventions. I think is picking something that could be used in practice and is like not too clunky, and I think like house master of the nativity sounds kind of dorky mm -hmm. and. I'm not sure also that that was originally it was as important the idea of like the house itself it was mm -hmm. more the idea of like the master of the house or the 
it's not just the master, but also the um, mistress of the house. Mm -hmm. There's like another term for that, but in like Roman society, the head of the household. Mm -hmm. And it's not the house that's as important. It's the idea of the one who's in charge of the entire thing. Right. And almost like the chart itself being a house, and you have a bunch of planets under. Um, that are living under one roof, and the question of like who's in charge, mm -hmm. and it's the master. The master of the house is the one that's in charge. Right. All right. I just wanted to clarify that. I still think you should play that song. Okay. I don't know the <laughs> song, so that's yeah. not as funny. Right. I know. I'm. Yeah. But yeah. Afterwards, you can play it. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Um. So I do have a little example chart really quickly that I want to throw up. So this is the chart of. T.S. Eliot. So it's a time chart. Uh, he has like something like 25-ish degrees of Libra rising. Uh, I set the chart using quadrant houses, I think using the porphyry house system, although the midheaven is such that it's not hugely, there's not going to be huge variations here depending on what form, what system of house division you use in terms of quadrant houses and evil, even Equal is actually going to be a little bit close here because mm. the midheaven is at like the very end of Cancer, like twenty nine Cancer. It looks like while the ascendant's at twenty five Libra. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, in quadrant houses, in poor free houses, especially the Sun is at three degrees of Libra, which makes it in the twelfth house in quadrant houses, and therefore it is cadent in quadrant houses. So even though it's in the first whole sign house, it's cadent in quadrant houses because it's moving away from the angle it's moving away from the ascendant and it's sufficiently removed from the ascendant that it's not within that like 5 degree range mm -hmm. so we wouldn't really consider it to be conjunct the ascendant by degree mm -hmm. instead it's falling away from the angle and therefore cadent um the moon is at 14 degrees of gemini and that is actually a succedent house according to quadrant quadrant houses so as a result of that even though it's a day chart and even though the sun is more uh Eastern, um, I believe in this instance, because the sun is cadent and the moon is succedent, that they would treat the moon as the predominator. Mm -hmm. So the moon, according to the first variant that Porphyry gave us for determining the master of the nativity, because the moon is in Gemini, Gemini is ruled by Mercury. So Mercury becomes the master of the entire nativity. Mm -hmm. Mercury, interestingly enough, is conjunct the degree of the ascendant, it's at 26 degrees of Libra, and also separating from a conjunction with Venus at 24 Libra, and they're both clustered around just the degree of the ascendant at about 24, 25 Libra. Mm -hmm. So T.S. Eliot, of course, was a famous American poet, and he actually won a Nobel Prize in literature in 1948 for his poetry. So arguably, you know, we can already see that Mercury is like an important or prominent planet in this chart because it's conjunct the ascendant. Mm -hmm. But what this is telling us with this doctrine is that Mercury is actually the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's highlighting it even more than it already was and maybe telling us to pay more attention if we were sitting down and trying to interpret this person's chart, we might be able to, with this doctrine, say, that that Mercury is going to be even more prominent, and somehow the mercurial themes that have to do with communication or writing could come to be dominant themes in this person's life. Right. And if you were to even say a, a statement as simple as that based on this doctrine, you would actually turn out to be surprisingly, that would turn out to be a surprisingly prescient statement in retrospect later in, in this person's life. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. 
Any questions about that? Mm, no, I don't think so. All right. So let's see. Next example, Salvador Dali. Um, so his son, it's a day chart. The sun's in the top half of the chart. The sun is in a succeedant house according to quadrant houses. It's in the 11th house according to Porphyry. Um, the moon, however, is angular because it's actually conjunct the degree of the quadrant midheaven. Mm -hmm. um, but despite that, I think despite the angularity, the sect, and the fact that the sun is more eastern um, over towards the left side of the chart, I think would make the sun the predominator in this instance. Mm, yeah. So again, there might be you might make arguments different ways, and there's ambiguities, but um, the sun I think would become the predominator in this instance. Mm -hmm. The sun is in Taurus, so the ruler of Taurus would become the master of the nativity, and Venus in his chart is in Taurus, in its own sign in the tenth uh, house by quadrant or the eleventh whole sign house. And of course, Salvador Dali became a famous artist and a famous painter, especially. Mm -hmm. So again, it could stand out or could point to a planet as being more prominent or more important in the person's life and chart than it might otherwise look like. Right. Yeah. All right. So that's that example. Um, and just one more for for the heck of it. So here's Linda Goodman's chart, who's a famous astrologer. Um, she has the ascendant at 22 degrees, or had the ascendant at 22 degrees of Libra, and the sun was at 19 degrees of Aries. So that means the sun is conjunct the ascendant, and it's just barely above the degrees of the ascent degree of the ascendant, which means it's a day chart. Mm -hmm. So remember back to I think the very first example Porphyry gave, that means the sun is automatically their predominator. Mm -hmm. And that's actually kind of an interesting instance is that when the sun is rising in a day chart conjunct the ascendant, the sun and the ascendant are obviously both in the same signs. So that automatically, the ruler of both the, the sun sign and the ascendant sign becomes the predominator, which mm -hmm. is kind of interesting in terms of the overlap there. Yeah, definitely. So she had Aries rising and the sun was in Aries. So Mars becomes the, uh, the not just the the predominator is the sun, but Mars becomes the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. So Mars is actually in Gemini and it's in the third whole sign house. And she um, ended up being the author of the highest selling astrology book of all time, um, at least in modern times. There's a little bit of an ambiguity about like if it's the highest selling compared to Ptolemy, because mm -hmm. we don't have like Ptolemy's numbers exactly. Yeah. And certainly we know that it's been translated into a lot of languages and reprinted and translated and, and yada yada yada, but um, Linda Goodman's book, Sun Signs, that came out in 1968 just sold mm. millions and millions and millions of copies. So in terms of like single book in a single language and in a very short span of time, that book sold a ton of copies. And it was mm -hmm. also in the modern era where you could print copies of books like much more easily versus ancient texts where they had to be like copied by hand. Yeah. All right, so, but you get the point otherwise that Mars there again becomes very prominent and mm -hmm. is playing a very prominent role in her chart in the third house. And she ends up, you know, writing a highly, hugely, highly selling astrology book. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, those are my three examples for that initial approach to the master of the nativity. One of the things to bring up at this point is that. Um, 
the master of the nativity seems to come up a lot when they talked about because the question now is like once you've calculated the master of the nativity what do you do with it or what's the purpose mm -hmm. we've seen a few examples where we have some suggestive things in modern times but what did they do with it and what did they think it was for and it turns out that part of what they seem to have done with the mastery of the nativity is they often connected it with character analysis and in rhetorius because one of the things one of the differences of course with modern and ancient astrology is that modern astrology is often since the work of alan leo and everywhere after that is much more focused on character analysis and astrology in some schools becomes almost entirely about character analysis and psychology and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like modern astrology to some extent in some schools is almost exclusively that. And there's some schools that say that that's all you're supposed to do with astrology or that's all right. astrology is capable of or that's all it's for. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the real differences when you go back in ancient astrology because when you read the ancient texts, it's like they're trying to make concrete statements about what will of events and concrete events that will happen in a person's life. Right. And rather than like how you subjectively will, you know, perceive that area of your life or something. Yeah, like how you'll feel about yeah. it or how mm -hmm. you'll react or how you'll do emotionally with that yeah. or mm -hmm. the type of people that you emotionally might be attracted to or, mm -hmm. or careers that you might gravitate towards or something like that. It's like the ancient texts are more specific, like you will do mm -hmm. this or right. whatever. Yeah. So what's funny though is the one instance where that's not the case, the one exception to that rule is when it comes to the master of the nativity because it's within the context of the master of the nativity that they actually, the ancient astrologers deviate from that and really do start talking about character analysis. Mm -hmm. And it's often only once they get to the discussion about the master of the nativity that some of the astrologers do start talking about the native's character in some sense. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be connected with um, this metaphysical concept that existed in the ancient world um, surrounding the concept of the, the daimon mm -hmm. or the native's guardian spirit, which has this kind of long history going back um, to like Plato and Socrates, and then was um, also existing in different like Egyptian traditions where they had. Um, the belief in different spirits and things like that. And there's like some weird overlaps between like ancient Greek philosophy and philosophical conceptions of the guardian spirit and then some other, um, including some magical traditions where this comes up and, and some Egyptian traditions. So I talked a little bit about that with Dorian Greenbaum on a past episode of the podcast. I can't remember what episode that was, but it was the one about the rediscovery of an ancient horoscope. Uh, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And she's done a lot of interesting work on that. Um, but the long and short of it, or the concise version of it, that it is essentially the notion that each soul is assigned a guardian spirit before birth, and that the guardian spirit somehow um, influences and informs character traits throughout the life. Um, and specifically, that one of the roles of the guardian spirit. Is that it was said to direct the life or kind of push the native um, towards their destiny, which was set by fate, mm -hmm. uh, which in Greek is hemarmene. So that seems to have been part of the role of the daimon. And it's almost like the 
like the modern some of the last modern echoes of it are almost kind of like the concept the Christian conceptualization of like a, like a little angel on your shoulder or a little devil on your shoulder telling you what to do and like pushing you in a certain direction is almost kind of similar to how they almost seem to treat the guardian spirit in some ways mm-hmm. in influencing the person and molding their character in some broader sense right except a little bit more than that actually that's almost like putting it down lower in importance than it was because mm-hmm. they seem to have taken this almost as being um overwhelmingly important and almost as like a dom- dominant factor in the life uh-huh. so i have this great quote from iamblichus the ancient philosopher iamblichus around like the 4th century or so he was a contemporary of porphyry and in one of his texts he has this statement about the guardian spirit where he says the soul the soul descends into incarnation and there is a portion to us an individual lot and then he goes on later i cut some stuff out and he says this spirit the diamond then stands as a model for us when a soul has selected at, has selected a spirit as its guide then straight away it stands over it as the fulfiller of the various levels of life of the soul and as the soul descends into the body it binds to the body and it supervises the composite living being arising from it and personally regulates the particulars of the life of the soul and all our reasonings we pursue thanks to the first principles which it communicates to us and we perform such actions as it puts into our minds so yeah maybe i was like i shouldn't overstate the like modern analogy of like the you know devil and angel that's like vaguely sort of related but mm-hmm. this is this conceptualization is obviously much more major in the sense of this being an overwhelmingly important influence in shaping the person's life mm-hmm. in making sure that the person um goes through with and ends up fulfilling their destiny and also in influencing the natives character traits and sort of like pushing them in the direction of certain character traits rather than others. Mm-hmm. So that was from a philosophical text. Here's a quote from Rhetorius, and this is what I was talking about when I was talking about astrologers starting to talk about character analysis when they get to the master of the nativity. So this is a passage from Rhetorius who lived in the 6th or 7th century. He was one of the last major Hellenistic astrologers. And he says he's talking about when Venus is the master of the nativity. He says when this star venus has the rulership of the nativity in a nocturnal chart and when it is effective in its own domiciles or rising in sect it will make handsome persons witty cleanly illustrious religious loving tenderly successful esteemed with praise by the people where they stand out in appearance wearing gold wealthy noted those who are done well for by women so this is from Holden's translation of Rhetorius's compendium. Mm-hmm. So there you can see, like he's stating some circumstantial stuff in terms of like circumstances, but he's also like saying character analysis stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be witty, they'll be clean, um, they'll be loving tenderly, and so on and so forth. Right. So this is where the ancient astrologers start drawing in character analysis when they get when they 
have established the master of the nativity, one, because they're treating that planet as having a dominant role in the entire chart, but also probably because of this background belief potentially that the master of the nativity was somehow connected with the guardian spirit and due to their belief that the guardian spirit is there to help not just ratif help ratify and ensure the native fulfills their destiny, but also the guardian spirit is somehow influencing character traits as well. Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, since we get the technical conceptualization of how to calculate the master of the nativity from Porphyry, Porphyry actually had a really famous debate with Iamblichus um, where they debated and talked about the master of the nativity. So in this text from Porphyry known as the letter to Anibo, he actually mentions the master of the nativity and he says explicitly that some people use the master of the nativity in order to identify the guardian spirit or the daimon. Um, so evidently Porphyry, we only have fragments of this text and most of them actually only survived through a response that Iamblichus wrote to Porphyry. So we have to like infer some of what Porphyry wrote based on Iamblichus quoting and sometimes just replying to him and we have to infer what Porphyry must have said. Mm -hmm. But Porphyry seems to have said that, um, that some people used the master of the nativity doctrine so they could identify the guardian spirit and then by identifying the guardian spirit they would in, in use it to actually invoke through some sort of ceremonies or some sort of rituals their guardian spirit and ask it to be their protector mm -hmm. and to actually like make a request of the guardian spirit to help free them from the power of fate mm -hmm. so th so that somehow According to Porphyry, some people, either some astrologers or some philosophers or, or whoever, thought that if you calculated the master of the nativity, you could use it to find the guardian spirit. And if you could use it to find the guardian spirit, you could ask the guardian spirit to free you from whatever your fate is. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, as the title of my book states, uh, Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune, available in fine bookstores everywhere, uh, it's that one of the the main thesis of my book is that Hellenistic astrology was originally conceptualized as the study of fate, mm -hmm. and that that calculating a birth chart and the positions of the planets at the moment of your birth said something about your fate, but also in some extreme versions was like the determiner of your fate in some sense and the determiner of the events that would or would not happen in your life, like the different topics of the chart, like marriage, wealth, career, success, friends, what have you, mm -hmm. and whether those things would happen or not, and whether those things would go well or not, and so on and so forth. So Iamblichus got into this whole famous um, debate with Porphyry over this that's documented in the book that survives from Iamblichus called On the Mysteries or On the Mysteries of the Egyptian Religions, where Iamblichus and Porphyry are going back and forth and arguing about this doctrine of the guardian spirit and the master of the nativity. And um, Iamblichus says, he responds to Porphyry and makes this counter argument where he says, that's kind of absurd because the birth chart itself and thus the master of the nativity, he argues, were allotted by fate. And so therefore, if you can find the guardian spirit and talk to it, why would the guardian spirit free you from your fate? 
if the guardian spirit itself was given to you by fate. And he points out this sort of like logical inconsistency of that and says that it doesn't make any sense from a philosophical or a metaphysical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And they have this whole sort of interesting debate about that that survives in this text um, called On the Mysteries. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, when I first encountered that idea, I was very sympathetic to it because I was like, yeah, that's totally not logical. But I think it depends on whether you think there's any wiggle room in there. Um, and also whether you think the, the guardian spirit has any autonomy to make such decisions. Right. Does the guardian spirit have autonomy? Right. So both of those factors. Is yeah. there any wiggle room in your fate? Is it like uh, negotiable to any degree versus like are the rough outlines there, but are the details negotiable? You know? Right. Well, and that was became one of the classic debates that we can see the astrologers having, and we can see this in some of the philosophical texts that there were debates about whether fate was negotiable or whether everything was predetermined. Mm -hmm. And I talk about in like chapter five or six of my book how there was like a, a whole range of different views that astrologers adopted, and some of them thought that it was negotiable, and others thought it was completely predetermined. And that the chart says everything about your fate, and the whole purpose of astrology is just to come to terms with your fate before it happens. Mm -hmm. That way, you can meet all events with uh, e equilibrium or without being thrown off by very positive things or very negative things. Right. But others didn't. Others thought there were ways to change your fate, and sometimes this is where like the magical traditions come in. This may have been where some of the electional traditions come in and, mm -hmm. and other things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, in one of the magical texts that survives in the Greek like papyrus magical texts, um, there is one spell where somebody had some sort of astrological spell where I think they're trying to invoke their master of the nativity or the guardian spirit, and they're asking it to like free them from fate. Mm -hmm. So clearly there were some people that wanted that was the, the purpose of astrology for them was not to accept their fate, but to learn how to change it. Right. And I could see this isn't my own personal like opinion on it, but I mean, I could see that if you thought that your guardian spirit was the sort of more most immediate connection to like enforcing your fate, then you would at least want to be able to talk to them if you wanted to like plead your case. Yeah. You know, because there'd be the they'd be like the next one that you could talk to about it. Yeah. It's like because the the diamonds were viewed as like spirits that were interme intermediaries between mortals and between the gods, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is I guess if you're approaching it from that metaphysical standpoint, if you can't speak to the divine or you can't speak to the deities directly yourself, you can at least try to talk to the intermediaries and see if you can get them on your side. Exactly, they're like right. the spiritual middle managers. Right. Yeah. To see if you can basically like bribe, bribe the not the guards, in some way bribe the guard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what's funny about the phrase, which is more of a later phrase, but I still like it. And I, I know there's some people that don't like to translate the ter term daimon. They want to leave it transliterated because mm -hmm. it has so many broad range of meanings and everything else. But it's like a daimon is a spirit entity of some sort, mm -hmm. and that's why. Just saying spirit is sufficient for me and is a fine approximation of what the term meant in Greek that a, a diamond is an inter, a spirit intermediary and in this context is acting as a sort of guardian spirit. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that's one of the things that's funny about it is in this context and the way they're talking about it, it's not just a guardian spirit in the sense that it's there as a protector, which right. is almost more of the later like Judeo-Christian conceptual or more Christian conceptualization of it, but it's a guardian because it's partially guarding to make sure that you fulfill your your fate, mm-hmm. right? Which is both, you know, some positive things. Let's say like meeting the love of your life, but could also be the some negative things like right. you know losing the love of your life or what have you. Mm-hmm. So it's a little tricky because it's guarding you potentially in a positive sense, but from a subjective standpoint, it could be in a more negative sense as well. Right. And those are that that's probably the thing that people are wanting to ask the guardian spirit to free them from is the things that they view as being subjectively negative and that they don't want to have to experience in their life. And so that's why they would sort of supplicate it in this way in order to see if they can get out of that. Yeah. So that's interesting. This is so this is all taking place within a broader context where astrology's been around for a few centuries. It's been established as the means of studying fate and the planets are the primary sort of gatekeepers and establishing a person's fate and influencing it. And then interestingly, you know, also we have other religions that grow out at this time like Christianity that start presenting an alternative means of sort of escaping your fate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting seeing different almost reactions to the cultural context of astrology and the way that it got tied into and almost trapped within the context of fate was then eventually different cultural reactionary movements out of that, mm-hmm. some of which are from the philosophical and magical traditions where there's like traditions where they're trying to come up with like magic, almost magical ways that you can Escape your fate by like negotiating with your guardian spirit. But then there's also other like religions that are almost reacting to it, like Christianity, which are saying if you accept, uh, you know, Christ and accept Christianity, then you can free yourself from your fate and your birth chart no longer applies to you, Mm -hmm. which becomes one of the major things that I think in the early centuries was appealing about Christianity, which set it apart. And that was one of the most radical things that it. Did and said and claimed mm-hmm. that made it so popular so quickly, so that it eventually like took over the Roman Empire. It's a pretty good selling point. It is, and <laughs> and that's the thing. That's one of the things over the past decade that I spent. I spent ten years writing my book because, not because I couldn't have written a, a book about the techniques of Hellenistic astrology, like the first year that I started writing it, because I could have written a pretty good overview and kind of did way back then. But I wanted to spend that 10 years studying more to understand the cultural context. And that was one of the coolest things that I really started to get into was eventually at one point realizing how dominant over the culture astrology became in the first few centuries CE and how Christianity would have looked from that perspective and how fresh and liberating Mm -hmm. it would have looked. Um, from that perspective, if you're coming from a cultural context in which astrology is telling you what your fate is and telling you that your fate is sealed in some st- sense and is not negotiable, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a sort of religious movement that comes along and preaches liberation would have seemed really appealing to some people, especially if your fate wasn't good, if you weren't happy with your fate. Right, right. You know, maybe if you're content with things, then that's then. You don't have any reason to rock mm-hmm. rock the boat, but if you were born into, especially let's say like poverty, poverty or something, then 
you know, you don't want to believe that that's where you're stuck for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do about it. You will be open to something if it's telling you you can have a radical departure from that. For sure. Yeah. We could have a really interesting, like, complete digression podcast on that right. alone. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting to see how, you know, we're coming from the standpoint now of astrology being more of a fringe thing, although it's like more popular lately, but it's still like a minority thing. Right. Um, it is not the dominant worldview. Well, it's still a minority thing. And, and one of the things that's interesting about modern astrology is, especially in the second half of the century, there was like a radical break with and like rejection of the idea of astrology and fate. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's also hard and took me a while to understand Hellenistic astrology in that context and ancient traditional astrology because the past most of the past century of astrology has been so focused on like humanism mm -hmm. and being a, a sort of a, not ideology but like a technique of like liberation and achieving freedom and mm -hmm. and um, achieving your potential or becoming whatever you want, right. that it's almost divorced itself completely from any conceptualization of fate and gone almost in the opposite direction yeah. to an extreme. Yeah, definitely. So that it's almost hard to conceptualize astrology as being something so different mm -hmm. um, because of where it's at now or where it was until somewhat recently, until we had this whole revival of ancient astrology and now we have this intermingling of all these different ideas of like fate and free will and like magic and that's been a whole interesting thing that's happened over the past year mm -hmm. or two and other such threads right yeah all right sorry for that long digression <laughs> but that's one of the episodes i really want to do and haven't done yet which is there's like a few scholars that are really specialized in this and who've written books that are really cool but i don't know if i could ever get them to come on the show to have that kind of discussion um but have done really interesting work on astrology and Christianity and like how it's like I don't know if anyone's fully made this argument. It's like some scholars have hinted at it and gone in that direction, but it's really the role of astrology in not not motivating, but contributing to the rise of Christianity, I feel like is still a relatively underexplored mm. area, but there's mm -hmm. been some interesting scholarship on it that um I hope to do a show on at some point. Mm -hmm. All right. So that is all I will say about that. All right. So let's transition now into talking about one of the other rulers of the chart. So we have the master of the nativity, which we've just we've identified the predominator, the master. But remember the third in order that I mentioned is the so-called co-master or the joint master of the nativity. So again, going back to Porphyry, and according to Porphyry, he says there's other other rulers. Uh, the co-master of the nativity. I have co-master slash joint master since there's kind of like you know different ways you can translate this term. It's just soon oikiodespotes, and the soon prefix means like co or joint, so it means like together with. Mm -hmm. So the closest analogy I could think of in modern times that's like straightforward is like the co-pilot of an airplane, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You have your like your main pilot, and you have your co-pilot. Mm -hmm. So, according to the first tradition that Porphyry outlines, the co-master of the nativity is the bound lord of the predominator. Okay. So, we're still using the predominator. We've calculated the predominator, and once we calculated the predominator, uh, the master of the nativity is the domicile lord, so the ruler of that entire sign. And then he says, according to the same tradition, the co-master 
is the ruler of the bounds or the terms or confines. There's different uh, traditional astrologers use different terms to refer to this, but the the terms or the bounds or the confines are these unequal subdivisions of the signs where they divide each of the signs up into five unequal sections, each of which is ruled by one of the five traditional planets. So the five traditional planets, excluding the two luminaries, the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the sign of Aries, the first like five degrees is ruled by Jupiter, and those are the bounds of Jupiter. The next segment is ruled by Venus. The next segment after that is ruled by Mercury, then Mars, and then Saturn. So um, those are the bounds. They're more commonly referred to as the terms, but um, terms is kind of a weird phrase, and the term like bounds or confines is a little bit closer to the original translation of the Greek term horia. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Yeah, definitely makes sense. Okay. So um, the most popular set of bounds is the Egyptian bounds. There were other approaches like the Chaldean bounds or Ptolemy came up with evidently. He claimed that he discovered it on his own, but most scholars think he actually just like came up with it on his own, like a system that made sense to him and then attributed it to some ancient text that he he said that he found. Um, So there were several different approaches or several different systems of bounds of dividing up the signs into these subdivisions that were floating around in ancient astrology. Mm -hmm. The most common or popular set was referred to as the Egyptian bounds, or that's what Ptolemy calls them. Mm -hmm. And it's usually assumed or usually believed that they're called the Egyptian bounds because that must have been the system that was outlined um, in the Nechepso and Petasiris texts, since those were said to be the quote unquote Egyptians, mm-hmm. where whoever wrote the Nechepso and Petasiris texts, they wrote them, they um, used pseudonyms or like pen names and published them as if they were being written by an ancient Egyptian king and like an ancient Egyptian priest mm-hmm. who worked together. And Valens, if you read Valens, in the second century, like he didn't know any better. He was living in Egypt in like the second century CE, but he seems to have legitimately thought that Nechepso was actually like a king that lived at some point in the distant past who pr- practiced astrology. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, that didn't happen. We just think, or scholars think, that there was some somebody in the first century BCE or a little bit earlier that wrote some foundational texts on astrology, attributed them to these two Egyptian figures. For reasons that are unknown, there's various speculations, and then those works were popularized and circulated widely. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they probably introduced was this set of subdivisions of the signs, and this is probably one of the reasons that those subdivisions of the signs were introduced because they were integral to the technique or the concept of the master of the nativity. Because in this approach, the co-master of the nativity is determined by the lord of the bounds of the predominator. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's interesting about this is in this approach, like it's only one of the the co-master can only be one of those five planets. It couldn't be the sun or moon, the sun or moon. Right. It could only be like Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Mars, or Saturn, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. Um the term bounds or confines, depending on how you translate it, is important because they all all the translations of the Greek term 
conveys some idea of like restrictions or limitations or keeping something like held or, or restricted or in check, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it made me think of the whole diamond discussion discretion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that um, the bounds or the confines came to be used in the length of life treatment, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably partially where this whole technique gets tied into in the later tradition and authors like Valens and Ptolemy, they're really talking about this within the context of trying to figure out the length of a person's life. And the bound lord becomes important, the bound lord of the predominator, because it's one of the ways that you establish how long the person will live by establishing which planet is their co-master, essentially. Mm -hmm. So with the bounds according to the Egyptians, I do have a handout on my website, if you go to hellenisticastrology.com slash bounds.pdf, you can get a PDF that gives you a visual representation of the bounds of each of the signs. Um, I also have another one, uh, another useful handout that's available at hellenisticastrology.com slash rulerships.pdf that will give you a different visual representation of the bounds as well as the rulerships of the planets of all of the other dignities. So domicile, exaltation, triplicity, decans, bounds, and uh, everything else. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so this is the part where this part of the technique really does take us, veer us directly into the length of life technique because using the bound lord of the predominator in some of the later authors they really did seem to spend a lot of time, they bring that up a lot within the context of the length of life technique, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, in all of the later authors, and this ended up influencing the medieval tradition and their whole use of the their analogy from translating this into Arabic and Latin was the, the al-mutin, which again just means predominator or victor, and then the, what do they call it? They used some like um, weird Latinized um, Arabic term, and I'm forgetting what it was. Do you remember? Or when they talk about the length of life technique, mm-hmm. they always talk about the. Oh yeah, it's the Almutan and the Alcogadan. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. but the Alcogadan it just means like the ruler or something like that. And the Alcogadan, the equivalent is this: it's the bound lord of the predominator. Mm-hmm is one of the approaches to determining the Alcogadan. It's the most common one in some authors. It's the one that's preferred first in the length of life treatment, I think in like Dorotheus, for example, and Valens to a lesser extent. They prefer the bound lord of the predominator as one of the primary potential candidates for the length of life technique. All right, so um, again, the length of life technique probably goes back to Petasiris. Um, and those are who later authors like Valens and Ptolemy and Manetho and others are drawing on for this. Um, the way that you're supposed to use the length of life technique, I've never done an episode on this because it's kind of a big topic and it's also a, a tricky one mm-hmm. in modern times sure. <laughs> to throw that out there. Yeah. But to give you the gist of it, the gist of the, the length of life technique in most authors with some slight variations in ancient times is that you're supposed to basically um, calculate the predominator, then you use primary directions to direct the predominator through the zodiac at different rates. Um, one of the one of the rates is based on the ascensional times of the signs, and some 
signs are faster and some signs are slower, but you basically direct the predominator um, using a sort of progression technique until it reaches the rays of the malefics. And when it reaches the exact an exact aspect with the malefic, especially like a conjunction, square, or opposition, that was supposed to indicate a difficult time to the native's vitality, which could result in in death in some instances if there's no counteracting factors or mitigate, mitigating indications. Mm -hmm. So that's half of the length of life technique. The other half of the length of life technique is determining the ruler of the predominator. And in many instances, or in some of the earliest authors like Dorotheus, the bound lord of the predominator is preferred. And the bound lord, um, the planet that rules that, which if it's the bound lord using the Egyptian terms or Egyptian bounds, it's going to be one of those five visible planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, or Saturn. And each of those planets has a certain number of years associated with it, which is known as the greater years of the planets. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the greater years of the planets is that it's actually the sum of the total number of bounds that are attributed to each of the planets. Mm -hmm. So that is the maximum number of years theoretically if one of those planets is the co-master of the nativity or the bound lord of the predominator that a person could live best case scenario if that planet is well placed mm -hmm. so these are the years associated with each planet so mercury is 76 years the greater years of venus is 82 mars is 66 uh, jupiter is 79 and saturn is 57 so Note the like lower number of years, relatively speaking, for the two malefics, and the higher number for the two benefics. Mm -hmm, definitely. So those are the greater um, periods that are allotted to each of the planets. But one of the things that's interesting is that in this technique, there was some sort of approach, and it's ambiguous in the earliest authors, where based on the condition of the planet, it will like add or subtract a number of years based on certain criteria. Um, so this is like almost like ideal scenario. Is it is the planet's well placed in the chart as the co-master? It can give its full years, and so the person lives a rel relatively long life, especially by ancient standards. Mm -hmm. Versus if it's afflicted or if it's sort of not well placed, if it's poorly placed by different conditions, it subtracts a certain number of years. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that sucks is that the authors don't clearly, especially the Hellenistic authors, do not clearly outline the like specific algebra for adding and subtracting a number of years based on different placements. Mm -hmm. Some of the later, like medieval and Renaissance authors, tried to come up with their own approaches to like specific numbers and stuff. But in researching this in the ancient sources, there was like the implication that. You know, you could get this full number of years if the place planet's well placed, but you might have to subtract years based on poor conditioning and a not ideal placement. And it doesn't seem to have been outlined explicitly in any of the surviving text, but maybe in some of the not surviving ones, it was. I don't mm -hmm. know. Right. So that's unfortunate. Um, there's this nice little quote from Firmicus Maternus when he's talking about the master of the nativity, where um, he says. The master of the nativity, which the Greeks call oikiodespotes, it possesses the sum of the whole nativity, and from it the individual stars are allotted the freedom of their decree. 
which, if it were arranged well in the signs in which it rejoices, or in which it is exalted, or in their own domiciles, and the birth were of its sect, nor were it struck by the harmful rays of malefics, nor destitute of the protection of the benefics, it decreases all goods according to the quality of its nature, or it, it, sorry, it decrees all goods according to the quality of its nature, and it decrees the entire number of its years. But if it were impeded by the malefics or deserted by the benefics, all of its efficacy having been weakened grows faint. Uh, so Ben, there's different translations, like Holden translated that passage and Bram translated that passage from Firmicus in like the 70s, but um, Ben is working on a new translation because it turns out if you translate Firmicus kind of literally, Firmicus is actually very interesting and his language is very flowery. It already comes off as kind of bombastic in some of the current translations, but he, there's some interesting subtleties and nuances in his language. So Ben translated that, Ben Dykes translated that passage for me um, from a translation that I hope he does the whole thing at some point. Um, anyways, in this you can see the doctrine already of the idea of the, the master and the co-master indicating a certain number of years, and if they're really well-placed, they'll indicate the full number of years of that planet. But if they have things like afflictions from malefics or even things potentially like cadency or other debilitating factors they can subtract that can subtract from like the sort of like life force or the vitality indicated by that planet mm -hmm. and weaken the or, or shorten the length of life right yeah so that's where this whole technique veers into the length of life technique and why there's some overlap between those two, which gets ambiguous because we're clearly talking about some similar things. We're talking about overlap here, but it's not clear if it was entirely meant to be overlap in the beginning or what, mm -hmm. since other authors like Rhetorius, they're talking about like character analysis right. with this planet and talking about it to find the guardian spirit and things like that. But then mm -hmm. you get other authors where it gets down to this very technical thing of like literally trying to predict how long the person will live, which is a much more practical and much more technique-oriented type thing. Mm -hmm. And much more oriented towards the body and not so much the character at all. Yeah, not almost like not the soul. It's almost yeah. like a body-soul distinction. Mm -hmm. So I do have one really quick example chart because I don't want to get deep into this whole length of life thing because that's a whole can of worms I'm not prepared to deal with. However, I will I will refer us back to one interesting example that I used earlier. So again, remember the just to demonstrate how this would work theoretically, here's the chart of T.S. Eliot again, who remember from earlier their, his predominator was the moon at 14 degrees of Gemini. So if you look at the, um, the Egyptian bounds for Gemini, 14 degrees of Gemini is the bounds of Venus. So the moon is in the bounds of Venus, it's in the degrees of Venus in the middle of Gemini. So Venus becomes the co-master of the nativity. And we remember, of course, that Venus is um, actually conjunct Mercury at 24 degrees of Libra and conjunct the degree of the ascendant, which is at 25 Libra and Mercury is at 26 Libra. Mm -hmm. So the result is that Mercury is the master of the nativity and Venus is the co-master, these two planets that are interestingly conjunct on the ascendant in his chart. And of course, as I said earlier, is a famous American poet who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1948. Interestingly, and weirdly, I'll just throw this out here, he died at the age of 76. And 76 is, of course, as I showed in the previous 
um, slide or two or a couple slides back, 76 is the greater period of Mercury. Mm -hmm. So he ended up living a full life and ended up living um, to almost exactly the period of Mercury. Mm -hmm. If he had lived to 82, that would have been slightly more interesting because that would be the period of Venus, which is the bound lord. Mm -hmm. But weirdly, for whatever reason, he did live to the number of years associated with the master of the nativity in his chart. Mm -hmm. So a little interesting, a little inconsistency, but nonetheless, I'll just I'll just throw that out there. Sure. Just put that out there. <laughs> and then we'll move on. And do your own research on that. Yeah, I mean mm -hmm. I, I will I will leave that up to other people, more enterprising individuals to research and figure out what there is to that. And there's plenty of debates and discussions. And I remember being at Kepler 10 or 15 years ago when we did do a class um, talking about some of the traditional approaches to the length of life. Mm -hmm. And our Western teacher was Lee Lehman for traditional Western astrology, but it was also co-taught by Dennis Harness, who was talking more about the Vedic approach to mm -hmm. like longevity and length of life, which was very different. And um, I did this whole research project where I went through and I, I read as many translations and all of the treatments on the length of life treatment in the Western tradition that I could find and sort of summarize them. Um, but one of the interesting debates that at the time I didn't really appreciate, but I appreciate a little bit more now, was both Lee and Dennis were kind of speculating and saying one of the problems with the length of life technique in modern times may be that it may have more to do with like hits to the person's vitality mm -hmm. at different point or periods in which they could suffer a period of low vitality either through illness or through injury that in ancient times could have been fatal right. without the benefits of like modern medicine mm -hmm. but potentially in modern times where you know somebody can be saved from something that otherwise would have been life threatening or debilitating um a few centuries ago now could just be a period of like low vitality and difficulties but not necessarily fatal mm -hmm. and so the question is there's a real both not just technical but like philosophical debate there of is the length of life technique because at the time this just annoyed me like i thought that was annoying like almost like a cop out and mm -hmm. i was thinking originally like no if it's supposed to be the length of life technique it's supposed to tell you how long you live regardless of you know whether you you are near a doctor at the time because i was thinking it was supposed to be more like universally encompassing encompassing the person's fate mm -hmm. um but i'm a little bit more sympathetic to the other view now that maybe what it's showing is potential periods of low vitality which may or may not necessarily be fatal mhm mm yeah i've seen lee write that a few different places before yeah um yeah I mean, although it's interesting, I mean, the, I think the immediate, you know, thought that comes up is, well, people live longer now, but actually people don't live like a ton longer. Like, mm -hmm. um, it's more like infant mortality has gone down, right. you know, and it's like if people's, you know, more, more babies and young children died before, but if they survived, you know, then, the, you know, I was actually surprised to learn this at some point that, you know, the, the length of life wasn't like crazy low compared to now. Yeah, that if you survived like infancy or childhood, that your the length of life that people did could live to a, a much older age than you'd expect. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, 
I don't know, vitality. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, it's already been a long night, so we, we don't yeah. have to go there. That's a whole other separate podcast, which I will do at some point. Right. But I've been uh, kind of avoiding the issue because it's a tricky one. Uh, but doing this is a nice precursor, just like with the House Division one and with the like Astrology and Christianity one. This is a nice precursor to a little set that up at some point because mm -hmm. that's one of the things I've always tried to do with the podcast is do certain episodes first that would like lead into others and kind of put off doing certain ones until we've done the necessary buildup. Right. So we've come up with four or five more out of this one. Yeah. yeah. Three, three more so far, I think. <laughs> okay. Right? I'm not sure. <laughs> Something Actually, no, like that. Maybe you're right. It's four or five more. It's also like the House Division one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have gone pretty far through this. Um, I do want to throw in a little bit more because um, that's basically the first tradition to approaching the master of the nativity. But remember, Porphyry said that that's the first tradition and there's a whole second variant tradition for determining the master of the nativity. And Porphyry reports it as follows. Mm -hmm. So he says, in the second tradition, which he doesn't name, um, the first one we assume probably comes from like Nechepso and Petasiris. The second one, it's a little bit less clear. He says, in the second tradition, the master is the bound lord of the degree of the ascendant, and while the co-master of the nativity is the domicile lord of the rising sign. So this approach is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's still using the um, the domicile master and the bound lord as these two central or pivotal rulers of the um, the sign that we're almost using as the predominator in some sense, except here it's not focusing on sun and moon and only defaulting to the ascendant in case those two are poorly placed, but instead saying the ascendant itself is always crucial and is always essentially like the predominator in some sense mm -hmm. um, for determining the master and co-master. Right. What's also weird is it's inverting the relationship of which one's more important between the domicile uh, lord and the bound lord because right. here it's saying that the bound lord is actually the master of the nativity, the bound lord of the degree of the ascendant, while the domicile lord of the entire rising sign is just the co-master. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting again in terms of whatever the the motivation or the logic was of the um, author of this approach. Right. So this approach is obviously more oriented towards the ascendant, and part of the reason for this, I think, is that one of the most common themes that must have, I think, I would speculate, go back to the original text, the first text that introduced the notion of the twelve houses and introduced the basic set of significations for those houses, which I think was a text written under the name of Hermes Trismegistus that was published sometime in the first century, probably around the time of Nechepso and Petasiris. And Firmicus kind of treats Nechepso and Petasiris as coming after Hermes and almost being as a contemporary of Hermes in some sense. So in that text, based on a brief sort of like paraphrase of that text by Thrasyllus, who lived in the early first century, the Hermes text seems to have referred to the first house as the helm. Um, he called the first house instead of referring to it as the first house. They called it the helm, like the um, the helm of a ship or like the steering wheel of a ship where you steer it from. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
So again, this seems to be invoking the nautical metaphor, and this is one of the things that actually makes me think and, and provides some evidence that Porphyry making that analogy earlier about like the the steersman of the ship and the uh, the the owner of the ship was not just necessarily a separate analogy, but perhaps was part of a broader interpretive principle because pretty much all of the Hellenistic astrologers repeat this name for the first house, calling it the Helm, mm -hmm. which appear which means that they they referred to the first house almost like the steering wheel of the ship, which almost then implies what are the other parts of the ship and. Mm -hmm. What roles are the planets playing, and does that mean the planets, in some instances, are playing the role of different officers on the ship? Right. So, their motivation here, if they were using that as an extended metaphor, which may be the case, and focusing on the ascendant in this approach, may have been attempting to identify the steersman of the ship, or like the captain of the ship, let's say, mm -hmm. and the co-pilot of the ship. Mm -hmm. um, would be my speculation for what. They would be trying to do in this approach, and why it would be slightly different than the other approach to like almost motivate a, a variant tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, if that's the case, then the question is what what questions were they trying to answer? What was motivating them conceptually for doing this? And I would say part of their motivation would have been then questions like where is the native's life headed? Mm -hmm. um, what topics will the native's life be focused on? Right. Um, and thinking that by identifying the master and the co-master and associating with the ascendant and its rulers, that they could identify somehow um, what direction the native's life was headed and what topics it would be focused on. Mm -hmm. So let's do one example chart just to show you what that would look like if we applied this doctrine to one famous nativity. So this is the birth chart of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, he had 23 around 23 degrees of Virgo rising in the bounds of Mars. So Mars, according to this approach, would be the master of the nativity, and Mars is located at 27 degrees of Gemini in the tenth house in his chart, in a night chart. Um, so Franklin D. Roosevelt, of course, was president during World War II, during you know the biggest war. In the history of the world so far, he mm -hmm. was the head of the country. Mm -hmm. And so there's something interestingly interestingly about the fact that in this approach, the master of his nativity or the planet sort of like directing things would be that Mars in the 10th house for him. Mm -hmm. uh, the co-master of the nativity in this approach, of course, with Virgo rising would be Mercury. And Mercury is located at 27 degrees of Aquarius in the sixth house. And the sixth house was traditionally associated with illness. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Roosevelt, of course, famously contracted polio in his late 30s and became, as a result of that, permanently paralyzed from the waist down so that he um, became the first president in the United States history with a severe or significant disability. Mm -hmm. Um, but more than that, he ended up, as a result of his experience with polio, being committed to finding a way to rehabilitate himself as well as others with polio. And the foundation that he created eventually went on to fund the development of the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. So we see two arguably major not just personal factors in his life that came to dominate his life, especially later in his life, but also um, 
larger themes that his life ended up influencing in the the world at large, Mm -hmm. I would argue might be part of what we're seeing there where the master and the co-master of the nativity ended up indicating themes um, that his life came to represent and came to influence in the world in general Mm -hmm. uh, through one of them being that Mars in the 10th house and its involvement in a major war and the other being that personal struggle with illness, but also the effect that his illness ended up having on potentially millions of other people. Mm-hmm. So that's the one example, one of the examples I wanted to use. Um, you know, I could also throw in Linda Goodman, but I think we're probably good at this point. Yeah. Oh yeah, I also have the Judy Bloom example. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll just throw those slides up for the uh, video version. Mm-hmm. There's a Linda Goodman chart where, again, it just focuses on Mars being the master of the nativity and in the third house and her being like the highest best-selling astrology book ever, potentially, arguably. Mm-hmm. Maybe. 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 <laughs> All right. Um, documented astrology book sales. Yeah. And then Judy Bloom. And let's do hers really quickly. I mean, with hers, her ascendance at 18 degrees of Libra. Um, the ascendant is in the bounds of Jupiter, so Jupiter is the master. Jupiter is located in the fifth whole sign house in Aquarius. Her ascendant is in Libra, so it's the domicile lord is Venus, so Venus becomes the co-master. It's also in Aquarius in the fifth house, um, and she, of course, is a famous author. This is actually your one of your favorite example charts, mm, right? Yeah, I think I initially lent it to you. Okay, it has gone on to an illustrious existence in many of your lectures. Right. <laughs> uh, so tell us about Judy Bloom. Oh, just that she's you know like a really famous um, children's book author in particular, mm-hmm. and is very prolific. So she's kind of known for both of those things: writing a ton of books and then being children's books. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and she like has won tons of awards, mm-hmm. and. Um, actually began writing in her biography while her kids were in preschool. Mm-hmm. So it's tricky because this isn't, on the one hand, you could argue this isn't a great example because she has a stellium in Aquarius in the fifth whole sign house anyways with uh-huh. Mercury and Jupiter and the sun and Venus there. So it's like arguably you could say you don't need the master of the nativity and the co-master to know that the fifth house is going to be a major dominant theme in her life. Mm-hmm. But it's like arguably um, – the master and the co-master in nativity or other the rulers of the chart could have been like Mars and Saturn, which are mm-hmm. in her seventh house or her moon, which is in her 11th house. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they ended up being in the fifth house, both of them is kind of interesting mm-hmm. in the dominant role that, that that's gone on to play, not just in her life, but also, you know, again, her influencing the lives of like millions of other people through her children's books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think that about this example and the one before the um, Roosevelt one, because Mars was really angular, it was angular to both the midheaven and the ascendant, and so. But it is interesting that it ended up being Mars instead of something else. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, not conclusive, but um, partially just for the sake of not using only hypothetical examples, but to throw out some little tidbits and interesting possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for the research. Definitely. All right. So to wrap up this little bit on the master of the nativity and the role of the master of the nativity, the master of the nativity seems to focus on one, character and character analysis in ancient astrology, as a quote from Artorius explained, and as 
some of the background stuff, like the quote from Iamblichus, explained also in terms of giving some broader metaphysical explanation of why that might be. Um, two, the master of the nativity seemed to focus on matters pertaining to health and physical vitality. And then three, finally, something about the native's focus and overall life direction. So I don't know. It's like those are pretty broad categories, but they're also kind of specific in some some ways as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, normally this would end here, and we are pretty much over because that's pretty much the end of the whole thing on the master of the nativity. But to throw in a little bonus material, if I may. <laughs> sure. <All right. laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> We're at three hour and one minute, so I'll make this part as brief as I possibly can. Sure. All right. So. Um, Porphyry, of course, as I pointed out at the beginning of this talk, mentioned one other powerful ruler of the nativity, and this one is what he calls the lord of the nativity, the curios in Greek, which means lord. Mm-hmm. It's like a term that's actually used really frequently in like the Bible in the New Testament. If you read and it's constantly talking about like lord this and lord that, it's using the word curios. Mm-hmm. So Porphyry again outlines two variant approaches to determining the lord of the nativity and there's a bit of a question are these presumably these are the two still the two same original sources that we were talking about earlier or are they two different sources i think we can assume that they're the still the two initial sources which are probably nichepso and petasiris and then one other unnamed source which i sort of speculate is probably the hermes text or one of the texts attributed to hermes but i don't really know for sure mm-hmm. So he outlines two approaches. One of them emphasizes the tenth house and the most elevated planet in the chart, while the second approach uh, focuses on powerful or notable planets in the chart. And the first first approach is actually pretty simple, and the second approach is actually ridiculously complicated. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you a, a bit of a summary of it. Um, in my interpretation of this, if the nautical metaphor is meant to be applied to this in Porphyry, then I think. Um, the lord is the analogy is that the lord is like the owner of the ship the guy that like overall gets to call the shots about uh you know the master is like the steersman that's like steering it towards certain topics um and sometimes might like mess up and like run into a rock or something which like just totally sinks the boat uh thus the physical vitality part but the mm-hmm. lord is kind of like the one who's overall in charge and gets to call the shots about um you know what you should be accomplishing in general, and whether you're going to be, uh, what your reputation is going to be as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So the Lord seems to be connected, especially with the native's career and reputation. Um, whereas the master, there's a tendency for them to treat that more as having to do with matters pertaining to character and health. The Lord also seems to be, when we get to talking about eminence factors, the Lord seems to be majorly about an eminence factor. And one of the things that's tricky about the Lord and that's interesting and unique compared to the master is that they say quite explicitly, and and just how the rules are set up, especially with the second variant tradition, not every chart has a Lord Mm -hmm. in the same way that like not every person is eminent. Sure. Yeah. All right. So the first approach that Porphyry reports to determining the Lord of the Nativity is pretty straightforward. He says the candidates for the Lord of the Nativity are the domicile Lord of the Midheaven, if this planet is angular, um, a planet in the 10th house, 
or a planet in the 11th house. And if no planets meet this criteria, then there is no Lord of the Nativity. Mm -hmm. So pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Yeah. So again, this seems to be focusing on, we're focusing already in this variant on the the, the midheaven, the 10th house, and the 11th house. Mm -hmm. And those are the highest part of the chart. So we're talking about visibility, right. eminence, reputation. Mm -hmm. And saying that in some instances, somebody might have this, might have a prominent planet in the chart, in which case it becomes sort of Lord of the Nativity. But if they don't, then there is no Lord, and it may imply there is no eminence or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I think the analogy breaks in a little bit in terms of the owner, because, you know, then no one owns the ship. But if nobody owns the ship. Yeah. Um, Just yeah. that piece of it. That's right. <laughs> well, and I should state this is one of the areas where um, Schmidt and I disagreed because in Schmidt's reconstruction, in his translation of Antiochus and definitions and foundations, he believed that that the master of the nativity is like the owner of the ship, and that the lord of the nativity is like the steersman. Mm. Uh, but I thought he got it reversed. And Porphyry is not clear. It's like Porphyry doesn't make this clear because it's not even clear if Porphyry is just making an analogy or if he actually meant this as a as a specific technical doctrine of associating certain officers with certain rulers of the chart. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Um, but um, I interpreted it differently, and it's because of the tendency in the second variant of the master of the nativity to focus on the ascendant. Mm -hmm. And we know that the ascendant is called the helm. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's one of the reasons why, and also because in the even in the first variant of the master of the nativity, even though they're focusing on the luminaries, they do eventually default to the ascendant. So in both this, in both variants of the master of the nativity calculation from those two authors, they seem to be have a, have a tendency to focus more on the ascendant, mm -hmm. and that's the reason. And because the ascendant is called the helm. Which is one of the very few instances where we can definitely validate that there was some nautical paradigm or some nautical me metaphor. That's the reason why I think if Porphyry's analogy is meant to be taken more literally or seriously, then it's the steersman of the ship that should be associated with the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something I did men mean to mention. Versus notice in this first variant for determining the lord of the nativity. They're entirely focused on um, the most elevated part of the chart, and they're focused on like the tenth house, the midheaven, and the eleventh, right. which tend to be associated with like you know eminent people like, and superiors and mm -hmm. things like that. And that's why I think the owner of the ship, if you're going to go in that direction, would be what Porphyry would connect that with, rather than the steersman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But it's a debate, you know, open to interpretation. All right, so that's the first approach to the um, Lord of the Nativity. The second approach for determining the Lord of the Nativity according to Porphyry is that there's different candidates, and he lists off this whole like string of candidates, mm -hmm. and it gets actually really complicated. Mm -hmm. But here they are, really quick. So he says. The candidates for being the lord of the nativity according to the second approach from some early anonymous source, again, who knows, maybe some hermetic texts, no idea. Um, the first candidate is the domicile lord of the ascendant. 
The second candidate is a planet in the rising sign. And, you know, I have in parentheses especially because I'm wondering if that's what's implied here, Mm -hmm. if it is in the bounds of the ascendant. So, whatever the bounds that the ascendant is located in. So, that becomes a candidate. Three, the Lord of the Moon, the, the domicile Lord of the Moon. Four, the fourth candidate is the domicile lord of the lot of fortune. The fifth candidate is a planet that makes a heliacal rising, setting a retrograde station within seven days of birth. If there are multiple, then the one that is not under the beams is preferred. A little nice little parenthetical remark. Mm-hmm. And then six, the bound lord of the prenatal lunation, which is the newer full moon that took place immediately prior to the native's birth. So those are the six-ish potential candidates for the Lord of the Nativity according to the second approach. Yeah, that's the kitchen sink approach. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, we're Clearly, it's just like talking about a lot of stuff, and mm-hmm. clearly we're getting into some other whole different territory here. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where it starts getting into more like eminence factors because some yeah. of those things that it's talking about are uh, unique astronomical things that would make a chart stand out sure. in a way that other charts don't. Right. Like especially criteria five when it starts talking yeah. about planets making a heliacal rising or setting a retrograde station within seven days of birth. Um, that's like a more of an eminence factor or something that would be unique or something mm-hmm. that would stand out in some way. Right. Although some of the other ones are ones that everybody would have mm-hmm. but here's the deciding factor so it's like you have those criteria but then he goes on and he says that the criteria for determining between them and what very little he says about this is that um the planet should not be under the beams in order to be the lord of the nativity and if it is out of those like six candidates it's disqualified mm-hmm. so if it's too cl- if it's within 15 degrees of the sun it's disqualified mm-hmm. um it has more dignity. The one that has more dignity in its location via sign rulership. So, if a planet's in its own domicile, it's going to win out over a planet that's not in its own domicile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has the most power in terms of angularity. So, a planet that is more angular is going to win out over a planet that is succeed under cadent. Mm-hmm. And finally, it has the most power, the one that has the most power between those six. In terms of its configuration with other planets in the chart, that's how I interpret the final clause that Porphyry gives there. So, um, what it is then is it's actually a list of like six plus possible planets in the chart, and you determine if one of them is standing out according to those other criteria. And if it does, Mm -hmm. that becomes the Lord of the Nativity. Mm -hmm. So, We can see then at this point why Porphyry says at this stage that this is the most complex and difficult doctrine in all of astrology. Um, In some cases, it's going to be easier to calculate. In other cases, it's going to be much harder to calculate. Uh, Some charts may all point to the same thing, and we saw overlap in some of the other examples like the um, if I'd gone through, I guess I didn't linger on it, but the one example of the famous astrologer wrote the Sun Sign book, mm, Linda Goodman, Goodman yeah. where there was some overlap with hers or with, mm-hmm. for example, Judy, Judy Bloom, Bloom yeah. where she had the ruler and the co-ruler according to one approach in the same sign. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so some of them will have overlap or focus, but others may not have certain ruling planets at all. Like it's possible not to have a Lord of the Nativity, evidently, mm -hmm. if none of those six candidates meet the qualifying criteria. Right. Whereas some people do have a Lord of the Nativity. And I think the Lord of the Nativity becomes almost like a eminence factor as a result of that. And that's why mm -hmm. some people can have it and some people don't. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So um Coming full circle here, back to our friend Vedius Valens. Um, Valens, remember, I opened this whole talk with Valens quoting this passage from Petasiris, which is very um, priceless. The fact that Valens preserved that quote from Petasiris about the master of the nativity and how important it is. Well, one of the things that's funny is if you keep reading through that passage in Book Two of Valens, he actually goes on to criticize Petasiris for that statement. And for emphasizing the idea of one ruler too much. And Valens says instead that there's multiple. So Valens says, quote, it's necessary to consider one house for occupation and rank, and another for life, and another for injury, disease, or death. Not everything will depend on one master. We act more rationally when we make our forecasts after considering many influences. Mm -hmm. So basically, Valens is like undercutting the whole idea that I introduced at the very beginning of this talk with the very first quote from Petasiris, um, where Petasiris is talking about this one master of the nativity that just grants everything, and that with it, you have all these things, and without it, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little complicated because already we can we already see in Porphyry that he's talking about like multiple rulers of the chart. So there's a little bit of ambiguity here and a little bit of a question of did any of these astrologers ever really think there was really only one planet that dominated everything? Mm -hmm. Or was the doctrine itself always did it always come with like a co-master of the nativity? Mm-hmm. Or you know the the fact that the predominator is so important in finding the master of the nativity, and how much is the predominator one of the rulers really? Mm -hmm. Or how much is the doctrine of the lord of the nativity? How much does that is that in, intertwined with the concept of the master of the nativity? And if it is, you know, is that really can that be removed from the whole doctrine? Right. So it gets complicated um, from the start, and Valence here though is talking about how it's important that all rulers are important and it's important to take into account things like the rulers of the different houses mm -hmm. that there's going to be a house that signifies like career there's going to be a house that signifies vitality um and so on and so forth and that it's not all going to come down to one thing but instead it's better instead of spending all your time just tra driving yourself crazy trying to calculate one master to look at the chart um, I don't know if the term's like holistically, but look at um, the many different pieces and components that are going on and make your forecasts or your predictions according to that by, by mm -hmm. calculating many different things instead of trying to reduce everything to one. Right. Multifaceted. Right. Yeah. So that's funny and interesting. And I thought that was a great way. That's a great way to round out the talk because then <laughs> it's like once. I wanted to introduce the entire doctrine so you can understand both the idea that maybe there are dominant as a dominant planet, then maybe the idea that there's dominant planets, and then the broader question of 
that we can now discuss as a community, which is does it make sense to try to focus on one planet mm-hmm. um, versus is there inherently going to be multiple mm-hmm. or yeah, and, and there's plenty that obviously can be discussed surrounding that. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite part of the talk to talk about it, but it's at the end here and we're, we've been going a while. Right. Yeah. Three hours and 17 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so we did almost keep it to the no, intended three hours. <laughs> yeah. We're making progress. This wasn't yeah. a four hour Zodiac releasing episode. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I want to say I, I'm kind of on Valence's side in terms of like, yeah, there's lots of things going on in the chart, you know, and um, I wonder if it's like almost an idealistic pursuit to try to find like one planet that like really matters above all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also, you know, that said, um, I could see the usefulness of some of these things in terms of at, at the very least identifying um, maybe planets that matter more than others or like have a sort of secret emphasis that you're not aware of. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because that's that's definitely one of the things that um, I think modern astrology, as I learned it in like the early 21st century, didn't do well is you would learn about all the different meanings of the planets and all the different places, but there was a real issue with prioritization and figuring out what's more important mm-hmm. than other. Um, it's almost like the desire to create like an astrology of liberation and of um, not talking about placements as being good or bad and rejecting distinctions like benefic and malefic and instead just talking about what is good about any placement mm-hmm. in some ways removed any sort of hierarchical thinking, which I can understand on some level why you'd want to do that and what's valuable and important, especially from a counseling perspective. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you sort of also lose some of the technical edge of being able to know what to focus on and what's more important relative to things that are less important in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially in certain contexts, like there might be some things that are more important to look at in some contexts right. when you want to study career versus maybe there's something that's more important when you want to talk about health or, or vitality. For sure. True. All right. So um, let's see. So my conclusion to this talk as I ended it uh, a month ago or, or a year ago or two years ago, whenever I put this together first, was that there's many different rulers of the nativity. I think we can see at the very least there's like a master and a co-master and maybe like a master and a predominator or maybe a master and a predominator and a co-master and a lord. <laughs> but there's some there's some some planets, you know, going around that are important. Mm-hmm. Um but the purpose here one of the purposes seems to be to identify planets that are more important. All right, so you, you took my <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You took my concluding statement <laughs> from my very last slide. Well, we agree. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's the conclusion. I guess that's all right then. <laughs> um, the master of the nativity and this whole doctrine surrounding different rulers of the nativity. That actually would have been a better title for this talk, but I think I'm still going to refer to it as the master of the nativity as the main title. Which is a little bit misleading, so I do a little bit of a, mm-hmm. of a fake out there, but that's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also help to identify the role of different rulers potentially, uh, as you were again saying and stealing stealing <laughs> my talk. Uh, that there may be some that are more relevant for character or vitality, like arguably I think the master 
they seem to be pushing it in that direction, whereas there may be others that are more important for things like occupation and eminence, which mm -hmm. seems to be a little bit more what the Lord of the Nativity was designed to, to indicate. So this may explain one of the things that I think is interesting about this doctrine, and one of the things that I'm excited about is I think it may explain why some people are more overtly characterized by certain placements than others, and why some people, as I said earlier, may really respond to their sun sign, or may really respond to their moon sign, or may respond to their rising sign. Mm -hmm. And it may give us an access point for understanding better um, why that would be in some instances, and why it would not necessarily be consistent across the board. Right. So uh, the last thing about this that I want to say, the last take-home lesson for me, is this is another one of those instances where I think even just that insight alone, if we were able to just take that from this in terms of an idea of a predominator and an idea that some people will be dominated by their sun, moon, or rising sign, and that there may be a way to figure out which it's going to be, and that that may have some broader implications for us in our understanding of astrology and how people relate to natal astrology, is that this shows um, that there are valuable insights to be gained from ancient astrology, from going back and studying and reading some of these old, ancient, dusty texts. And it's not just purely academic. While there is an interesting academic and historical and like social or even religious and philosophical side to it, and there's nothing wrong with studying that, there may be other insights that are more practical and more useful for contemporary astrologers. And so that's why I like to end a lot of my talks with the sort of cheesy, cheesy saying that by looking back into the past, we can create a better astrology for the future. Mm -hmm. um, not by going back into the past and everybody dressing up in, in togas and pre pretending that we're ancient Greeks and it's 2,000 years ago, but instead by going back, looking and seeing if there's useful and interesting information from the past and bringing it forward into the future. Because one of the points is that this doctrine, this is literally from texts that it's doctrine that we didn't have access to until very, very recently, until some modern astrologers, contemporary astrologers like James Holden and Robert Schmidt went back and translated some of these texts into modern languages so that contemporary astrologers could start reading them again and could be reconnected with our tradition uh, and bring some of those techniques forward. Mm -hmm. So I think it does that, and that's part of the work that we're doing now, and that was part of the purpose of this talk tonight. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot for for staying up late late to do this with me tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks to everybody for listening to one of our me and Lisa's long, uh, new uh, additional like marathon sessions. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Do I have it? Oh yeah, I have like the other usual slide thing where. Um, I gotta make a, make a pitch. So if you're interested in Hellenistic astrology, check out my book, Hellenistic Astrology: The Study of Fate and Fortune, available in fine bookstores everywhere. And by that, I mean basically just go to Amazon and buy the book. Just do a search, and you'll find it. It's also available in Barnes and Noble and a few other bookstores if you ask them super super nicely for it. Uh, I also have a course on Hellenistic astrology where I have over a hundred hours of lectures. Where I go deeper into material like the ruler of the ascendant, um, whole sign houses, sect, triplicity rulers, timing techniques, and tons of other stuff. And I use hundreds and hundreds of example charts to demonstrate how the techniques actually work in practice. So the course comes with a copy of my book. 
and you can actually get a discount on my course if you already own the book. So just email me if you already have it, and I'll give you the discount code. For more information about that, please see the course description page at theastrologyschool.com. All right, and that, my friends, leads us to the end of this lecture. Uh, those are my websites, hellenisticastrology.com, chrisbrennanastrologer.com, and theastrologypodcast.com. This has been episode 205 of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, we are clocking at three and a half hours. It is now two and o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. So I think we're both going to go pass out. Mm -hmm. We did forget to have dinner tonight. Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm ready for dinner. All right. Yeah. So we're going to get dinner somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for joining me. All right. You're welcome. Thanks, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks to Stephen for editing this. Thanks to Paula Bellomini for some of the diagrams, Gemini Brett, and everybody else that I'm, anyone else that I'm forgetting. Thanks especially to the patrons who support this work and make this possible that I can just like record this huge three and a half hour workshop and just put it out there for free. It's actually not completely for free because basically we have a bunch of awesome patrons and supporters who are donating like $1 or $2 or $5 or $10 every time I put in an episode. And as a result of that, we've been able to build this beautiful studio. We are able to keep recording interviews with great people, great astrologers every month. Um, sometimes just putting out research like this that I've sat on for years, I'm now able to like release to the public because this work is being supported by a group of patrons who are like paying to get more episodes and paying to have me keep um, upping the quality level and trying to put out more content each month. So if you support this work, if you listen to the podcast or watch my YouTube channel and you want to support that and see sort of show your appreciation and buy me and Lisa dinner uh, or coffee each time we do it, then consider becoming a patron. You can find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe where there's a link to our Patreon page. Uh, where you can sign up and get access to like early access to new episodes, access to me and Lisa's electional astrology uh, episode that we do each month. We also do a casual astrology podcast, which is just for patrons and uh, a ton of other bonus content. All right, that's it for this pitch. Let's go get some food. All right, sounds good. All right, thanks everyone for listening or watching, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Mm -hmm.